Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped. Simply log on to manscaped.com, search the tremendous inventory of Manscaped products, and when you hit that checkout counter, use promo code GWC for 20% off and free shipping. Once again, manscaped.com for all your male grooming needs. And use that promo code GWC for 20% off and everybody's favorite free shipping. Wallach's in bad shape. Chet. Oh, now I see what he used that bandage for. Look at Wallach grabbing Teddy Thomas. He's got Teddy down. Wallach trying to get away. That bandage rubbed against his eyes. He's in bad shape. Look out, here's the alley up by Chris. He's got Wallach down. Teddy goes for it. One, two, three. It's all over. And the first ball goes to Chris Tolis of the Tolis Brothers. October 16, 1953, in Oakland, California, America. Two brothers would tag for the first time in what would end up becoming a three decades long path of destruction across large swaths of North America. John and Chris Tolos would end up completely changing the way that we perceive and the way that we feel about professional wrestling today. But just what did John and Tolos end up meeting to professional wrestling? And in how many ways have they changed the way that professional wrestling is perceived today? Join us this month on Grappling with Canada as we take a look at the Canadian Wrecking Crew. John and Chris, the Tolos Brothers. Hello everyone, and... Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. To Grappling with Canada. And Kakusei to all the Croatians listening at home in Croatia and abroad. More on why I'm saying that a little bit later. As with each and every program, I'm your host, as usual, the Taxman. I'm really looking forward to today's episode. I think it's going to be one of our more interesting looks at two of who may be the most undersung people in the modern sense of professional wrestling. John and Chris, the Tolos Brothers. Today is going to be a jam-packed, information-filled episode, as you guys have come to love and expect with this program. And I think that between the research that's gathered and the two important guests that I have on today's program, that we are really going to open some eyes about just who the Tolos Brothers were how important they are to professional wrestling history, and the direct straight line that you can take from them 
directly into the future and present of professional wrestling. But before we get into all of that, if this is your first time to Grappling with Canada, welcome to the program. You can go back into the archives. We have some tremendous deep dive episodes on some of the, again, unsung people in Canadian professional wrestling history. People like George Gordienko, like Rhonda Singh, the Monster Ripper, like Billy Two Rivers or Chief Don Eagle. And especially like last month, although he's not an unsung hero, he's very much uh, still in the hearts and minds of many professional wrestling fans. But somebody who is uh, doesn't get his new due, per se, in today's day and age, and that would be the whipper, Billy Watson. Also, I want to pre- or I want to thank everybody who checked out the pre-episode to that uh, portion uh, where we did the special look at the Nanjo Singh, we'll say, issue and situation. Uh, once again, go back in the archives if you haven't listened to those. Don't hit this one on pause, mind you. <laughs> but once you're done this one, feel free to go back in the archives. Like I said, there's some incredible deep dive episodes with some really fantastic guests. As I always say, guests are what make the program. And today is no exception. We're going to get into all of that a little bit later. But we should probably start with where you can find this program. A little bit of housekeeping, if you will. You can find Grappling with Canada on all major podcasting platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcasts, you will find Grappling with Canada. When you find that podcast, please remember to leave a five-star rating and a written review. And especially on Apple Podcasts, if you leave a five-star rating and a written review, It'll get read aloud on the next available program. Speaking of which, I have a brand new, tremendous five-star written review that I'm going to be reading later on in today's program. You can also find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash Six-Sided Podcast. As usual, this podcast feed is the best, fastest, and easiest way to get this program. However, I would also ask you to uh, throw a subscription on our YouTube page as we are dragging ourselves to the thousand subscriber mark. These programs do wind up on there, although I am backlogged. Uh, We're also in summer here. We get like three days of summer in Canada, so I've been enjoying it uh, quite a bit lately. And uh, so that's kind of pushed the YouTube portion of it back, but eventually I'll get all caught up. So go ahead and throw a subscription on our YouTube uh, page. You can also connect with us on Facebook. We have an incredible Facebook group, the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. There's been so much incredible information, so many personal stories that have been shared on there, and some fascinating projects that have been discussed on there recently that I'm really been interested in and I'm really enjoying uh, seeing all of the interaction on that. So come on in and join the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. Also use the Facebook pages section, find Grappling with Canada and go ahead and like the Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram 
Instagram.com slash GrapplerWithCanada is where you can find some interesting tidbits related to the show. And uh, lately I've been starting to post up some more fun stuff on there. So definitely want to find me on Instagram and shoot me a follow and uh, enjoy what I am putting up on there as well. A couple of other things that I want to uh, talk about before we get into the program today is... We are currently soliciting still <laughs> donations for the podcast. Unfortunately, there is uh, quite the monetary undertaking in regards to this podcast. So no amount is too small and no amount is too big. So feel free to donate to the program. Uh, if you do, you get a big shout out on the next available program. There is easy ways to do that, including a direct PayPal link. Uh, there is the tip function on Good Pods, as well as buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. You can find all of these in the Linktree link in the show notes of today's episode. Once again, anything that gets donated goes directly to the podcast. It doesn't go anywhere else, right to the podcast to help with uh, the research, the procurement of, of items, etc., uh, etc. Et so... Any help that you guys can uh, provide there would be much appreciated. Another way to help the program is grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. That's the official t-shirt store for Grappling with Canada. And a side note, as usual, all of the classic Grappling with Canada logo t-shirts, that's the one that's the cover art for this episode with the Canadian uh, Maple Leaf flag, all proceeds of that are being donated to the Children's Hospital here in friendly Winnipeg, Manitoba. So go ahead and uh, pick up a shirt and uh, support uh, charity and support the program as well. I'm really excited to be sharing some special news regarding uh, something that came up in regards to our subject matter uh, last month, more specifically with the special episode that preceded it. And uh, it's something that I'm really excited about and I put a lot of time and effort into. And I'm going to talk about that way later on in the program. Now, you'll know that I gave a little shout-out to Croatia at the start of today's episode. That is because this podcast is the number two rated history podcast in Croatia. So thank you, everybody in Croatia, for checking out this program. Uh, it truly means a lot. It's it's absolutely mind-boggling when I get these uh, readouts, or however you want to say it, monthly, about where Grappling with Canada is charting in various uh, places in the world. It's, it's crazy. And uh, to think that a guy from Winnipeg, Manitoba can, uh, you know, put some time and effort and get some people interested in Canadian professional wrestling history and have that translate across the globe. <sighs> Mind-blowing. So thank you, everybody, for checking out the program. And thank you, everybody, who's been spreading the word about this program. This program exists because of you, the listener. And this program gains more listeners because of, simply put, you, the listener. So if you can go to your way to uh, suggest this program to a family member or a friend, uh, it would truly mean the world to me. And uh, 
yeah, it's just it's it's shocking almost. Uh, every month you just to see the the growth in this program and where it's reaching and who it's reaching. It's it's incredible. And hats off to each and every one of you, the listeners, because this without you, this would not be possible. All right. Today's episode on John and Chris, the Tolos brothers. Now, like I said, this thing is going to be jam-packed with a ton of information. And I'm going to do this one a little bit differently than I would normally do an episode. Well, I guess there's two reasons for that. One, because each episode of Grappling with Canada that I've done so far is focused on one person. This includes the two-part episode on Rowdy Roddy Piper earlier on in this season. Each episode so far is focused on one person at a time. Today, we have... Two, the brothers, John and Chris Tolos. Now, the reason I want to do that is because, yes, I can fully appreciate that John Tolos, and you're going to hear about it in this program, John Tolos was far and away the bigger star than Chris Tolos was. Although, there are mitigating circumstances as to why that is. And I think that you're going to have a whole new appreciation for Chris Tolos at the end of this program. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to cover uh, the life of Chris Tolos. I'm going to go a little bit more in-depth into his life as well than I am just me personally speaking to you guys because my two guests are going to give you a little bit of Chris and a lot of John. So I'm going to fill in the blanks a little bit and give you a lot of Chris and a little bit of John if that makes any sense. I think you'll know what I'm talking about as we get into the episode today. And like I said, Chris's story to me is fascinating and it's heartwarming. And I think uh, at the end of this program, you're going to agree with me. Now, I said at the top of the program that I have two excellent guests today. And I think you guys are going to really agree with me on this one. Making his third appearance on the program, we have the first dentist of professional wrestling. Dr. Mike Leno is back on the program. We go deep in the weeds about the Tolos brothers' impact specifically on California, but more broadly in terms of professional wrestling history. There are some things that you guys think you know that some of your favorite stars quote-unquote brought to the business. You're going to get your minds blown. We uncover some incredible information and uh, we are really going to set the table for a lot of the in-depth discussion that we dive into deeper in this episode with my next guest. Evan Ginsberg is joining the program today. Now, if you're not familiar with him, uh, Evan is a published author and he was an associate producer on the Oscar-nominated movie, one of my favorites of all time to be quite honest, The Wrestler what a tremendous movie. Uh, obviously starring Mickey Rourke. Uh, he was also a big part of 350 Days. Uh, that was a documentary with uh, Bret Hart, uh, Billy Graham, and various others. He has an immense uh, TV, film, and radio career. And he is also the senior editor and writer for Pro Wrestling Stories. That's a teaser for later on in the program. And also uh, the podcast... Uh, wrestling and everything coast to coast. So 
I'm thrilled beyond words to have these two gentlemen from opposite sides of America talking about two incredible Canadian professional wrestling professional wrestling legends. You can tell I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. I'm excited. I hope you guys are too. And I think that the best way to kick this thing off, as we usually do, is to throw up a little uh, Tolos Brothers audio. So please enjoy this. And on the other side, let's meet and learn about Chris Tolos. Please enjoy. Well, I figured sooner or later I'd get a shot. Wallach hits the dust. Chris working on him. Got him in bad shape. Referee Teddy Thomas moves him away. And John comes over after him. Chris has got him, but he's under the ring rope. Teddy's out on the apron. Oh, this is too much. Look at Teddy. He's got a chokehold on Chris and he can't break him away. Finally broke him away. Chris and Chet Wallach battling away. And Chris goes out of the ropes. He's got Wallach out. He pulls him out. Look at him. Smashing away outside the ring. These two behemoths. Finally, Wallach goes down. The two tallest brothers roughing him up. Chris gets him on the ropes. Look at this action. The tallest brothers. He ran into a kick. He's in bad shape. He's down. John jumps him. John pummels him. The tag made for Chris. Chris comes in. The eye gouge. Again and again. Oh, look at poor Wallach. The tag made. Here's John coming in again. Wallach picks him. Jumps on him. Here's Chris going up for the alley. Oh, it's all over, I believe. John falls on him. John has him. Teddy Thomas comes in. The count. One, two, three. It's all over. The tallest brothers have won it. But the action isn't over. Nander going after John. But the fall has been completed. Nander goes in to help Chet Wallach out. The tallest brothers have won it. Here's Manny White. Of the second and deciding fall, six minutes and ten seconds. The winners, the Tolis Brothers. Chris Tolos was born December 5th, 1929 in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. He was the oldest of three children born to Greek parents, Nicholas and Evangelina Tolos. His two siblings would be, obviously one of them being John Tolos and his sister, Mary Tolos. Throughout his formative years, Chris was always known as quite the athlete. Uh, He played football, he played hockey, lacrosse, and he was a track all-star. And eventually ended up learning how to wrestle both amateur and then professionally. He ended up getting into professional wrestling via Wee Willie Davis and ended up making his debut in Buffalo around 1951. 
Unsurprisingly to most people listening to this program, Chris debuted as a heel and would end up wrestling as a heel for the majority of his career, with some notable exceptions, which we will get to later on in the program today. Now, it's often been noted, and eventually you're going to hear that, or this fact of which uh, noted in this program as well this evening, that uh, Chris's career was very truncated. Now, this is for a couple of reasons. One is that he really was kind of a more introverted individual, generally speaking, and he stayed around Hamilton for the majority of his uh, life and career. The other reason for that is that he ended up actually uh, taking care of his mother, who lived to the age of 101, which is quite the accomplishment. And it really says something about the character of somebody who they would essentially put their life on hold, sacrifice a, a career which, it, by all accounts, Chris was excellent at professional wrestling, to essentially take care of his, his loved mother. I think that speaks volumes to just who Chris Tolos was, but it doesn't end there, as he also ended up taking care of his sister, uh, who was disabled. You're going to hear about that later on in my conversation with uh, Dr. Mike Lano. But for all intents and purposes, and for the purpose of this uh, story today, and talking about Chris, I felt it was really necessary to make sure that I really accentuated those aspects of his life. Uh, he did marry in 1971. It was a short marriage, but he did end up having a son named Nicholas as well. Now, it is interesting that, again, everybody talks about how much bigger of a star John was than Chris. But John would have never got into the business without Chris. Chris is the one who ended up getting John into professional wrestling, something I'm going to get to a little bit later. Now, one very interesting fact, and I haven't been able to find a copy of this, so if anybody has a copy of this or has a copy of even the cover of this, because I've never even seen what it looks like, please uh, shoot me a message on Twitter at 6 underscore podcast or email me. Uh, at sixsidepod at gmail.com or throw it up in the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. I would love to see it. But in 1973, I believe it was a year, he Chris Tolos came out with a cookbook. Apparently, he was a magnificent cook. And in true Tolos Brothers fashion, would promo it every chance he got from 1973 to 1974, which apparently I could just, I could see it in my mind's eye, right? This big hulking wrestler, you know, pushing his cookbook on on wrestling television kind of sounds familiar like something that happened in the late 90s, doesn't it, folks? Again, threads of the past that transcend today. We're going to have more of them as we go along in the program today. Chris would end up having an in-ring career spanning from 1951 to 1983 and ended up having roughly 1,100 total matches. Now, these include singles and tag matches, something I'm going to get to a little bit later in the program when we talk about the Canadian Wrecking Crew aspect of his professional wrestling career. But for all the talk of how Chris's wrestling career was a lot shorter and a lot uh, less involved, we'll say, than John's career, still having, you know, almost 1,100 matches in a somewhat... Um, 
modified working environment, we'll say, is pretty impressive when you consider uh, everything else that he was dealing with in his life and the people that he was caring for in his life as well. Now, John Tolos was born September 18, 1930, as well in Hamilton, Ontario, to the same set of parents as Chris, as you would so imagine. Now, I mentioned earlier that Chris ended up getting John into professional wrestling, but that's not to say that John as well wasn't quite a a distinguished athlete as well uh, before he got into professional wrestling. Uh, Again, sports such as lacrosse, football, and hockey uh, were some of his favorites growing up. Now, later in the program with my discussions with Dr. Mike Leno and Evan Ginsberg, we're really going to get into a lot of the feuds and memorable moments of the Canadian Wrecking Crew, but also more specifically John Tolos, as as you can tell, he had a much longer and much more winding wrestling career. But I always find it interesting to uh, discover what wrestlers of the time period thought about the two wrestlers. So I'm going to include uh, some quotes from some very prominent names, some names that we've actually covered on uh, previous programs of Grappling with Canada. And uh, I always find it interesting to really get a snapshot of who these people are by the people working with them. So let's get into a couple of these. Now this quote comes from Jim Friedman from his 1988 book of Drawing Heat. Quote, They worked as a tag team as they really were, brothers, and inseparable. Neither would stop at anything to defend the other. This solidarity, a fanatical loyalty that called organized crime to mind because their secret weapon, a mindless brotherhood. They flogged it weekly on TV appearances with a steady drone of mutual admiration and threats addressed in unison to their adversaries. Brother John would say to Chris, Right, Brother Chris? And would pass the mic for Chris to say, Right, Brother John? Right? Right. Another quote would come from Canadian legend Gene Kineski. Quote, The Tolis boys were always in great shape, always kept themselves in great shape. Rough, tough, rugged type of individuals. Chris was kind of reserved, while John was very outgoing. They'd done, they'd done the job real, real good. In other words, when they got in the ring, they got the job done real well. They came by it naturally. They were both great athletes, kept themselves in great shape, and that's the key to any sport. Journalist Bill After would remark about the Tolis brothers. Quote, when I was a little kid, they were the Tolis brothers, the Golden Greeks in New York. I first saw them in Sunnyside Garden in New York, probably around 1960. I just remember them holding up their arms and Chris Tolis going, Me and John are the greatest. That's what I remember. Now, a couple of interesting quotes, because if you've ever seen the Tolos Brothers interviews, there's a certain uh, animalistic magnetism that comes from their interviews that would very much lead your mind to think about the Tolos Brothers in a certain light. But these couple of quotes I found very interesting and really speak about the character of Chris that we just talked about previously, but about the brothers that you're going to hear about a little bit more in the program today. Quote, John and Chris were really shy, 
uh, according to Hamilton's sailor Bob Clark. At the time, he would say, I know that Chris is around all the time, but Chris is the shy one. Well, so is John. They don't like the limelight anymore. They are very quiet. They don't want any publicity, no nothing. They don't even come out to any of the engagements at all. And another Hamilton friend, Hurricane Smith, would say, quote, They're such gentlemen, two of the nicest men that you will ever meet. And these are a couple of things that are going to come up later on in our program tonight as we get deeper into the uh, lives and careers of the Tolos brothers. Now, we'll get into a couple of quotes concerning John more specifically, but you'll also see Chris pop up in these as well as as uh, they really were inseparable at certain points of their career, as we had just previously mentioned. This quote comes from Art Williams, uh, who was a referee from the Los Angeles promotion, where you will hear very much about that later on in the program. Quote, Tolis was one hell of a talker. That's what got him over. He was a better talker than he was a worker, much to his credit, and that's not a knock. That's what got him over. Publicist Jeff Walton would agree with that statement. Tolos, without a flaw, was one of the best talkers ever. And one of his frequent opponents, um, Mondo Guerrera, would really put into context uh, what made John Tolos the best. Quote, John Tolos was a master at his craft. He actually was what is now known as the old school, where he could carry the people to a heated end. John had that. He had that character of that, his mouth, the way that he talked. One of the first guys that would carry an interview that would make you sick, making fun of people to capture what really ticked the guy off. He was a master at that. He could do it quick. He had that sense of capturing what was good about the guy, his opponent, and know how to use that against him in the interview. He's got a personality that when you see him looking around at people, saying something to the people, that people want to kill him. He's just got that arrogance to be a good, bad boy. Wrestler Don Curtis would remark of the Tolis Brothers' in-ring uh, personas and style. Quote, they had a rough stomping style. They were pretty much equal in the ring and really had good timing and thought very much alike. Now, there are many firsts in professional wrestling that can be attributed to the Tolos brothers and many to John Tolos himself, one of which I actually have the audio of that you're going to hear a little bit towards the end of this segment of the program tonight, so stay tuned for that. Tolos was known for all kinds of outlandish um, in-ring incidents. He's from all accounts that I can find. He's the first person to break a guitar over somebody's head in a ring. Uh, He's the first person who would bring out two-by-fours to the ring. He was the first person who really started to use chairs and baseball bats and some hidden weapons. And he was also the first wrestler to pioneer and bring in a bowl constrictor with him to the ring, something that you're going to hear a little bit later on in the program as well. Now, again... All things that you could draw a direct line from the past to, you know, when I was growing up in in wrestling in the 80s, early 90s. You know, you think about guys like Hacksaw Jim Duggan. You think about guys like like Jake the Snake Roberts. You think about what was happening in ECW in the early 90s. Well, again, a lot of that you can tie into the Tolos brothers. And again, one very important 
uh, aspect that, again, I have the audio of that I'm going to play uh, in a few minutes' time before we jump into our Mike Leno interview. Now, with a career lasting from the early 50s all the way till 1992, John Tolos ended up having a career match total of just over 1,500 total matches. Now, I know that many people are probably wondering, well, you know, the Tolos brothers were such noted tag team specialists. I mean, hell, they were known as the Canadian Wrecking Crew after all. So how many matches did they really have as that tag team? Here's the astounding number to me. Now, keep in mind, Chris had roughly 1,100 matches. John had just over 1,500 matches. So from 1953 to 1970, the Canadian Wrecking Crew tagged for 534 matches, according to uh, everything that I've been able to research. Just an absolutely astounding number. Essentially, Half the amount of time that Chris spent in the ring was in the Canadian Wrecking Crew tag team. And a third of all of John Tolis's matches were teaming with his brother Chris. If that doesn't say something for uh, longevity and, uh, and tag team prowess, boy oh boy, I'm not sure what else would. And again, these are two guys who absolutely pioneered a whole lot of things that we see in today's professional wrestling that, truthfully, nobody had ever seen before. Nobody ever really heard the promos like, right, brother Chris? That's right, brother John. Talking in third person, something we're going to talk about later on in my conversation with Dr. Mike Leno. Right, the this arrogance, this way of drawing people in, this way of captivating the audience and making the audience so hot that they wanted to physically jump in the ring and murder these two individuals. Something that we're really missing today in professional wrestling. I'm clearly not advocating violence against wrestlers. Probably a bad idea for most of the uh, fan base that's out there. Enough said on that part. However, we are really missing that in today's environment. The absolute intoxication that the fans have with the individual in the ring that absolute you know loss of sense of self when when somebody can suck you into what they're presenting in the ring man there's nothing like it and i think that's one of the most beautiful things about professional wrestling and something that uh we've really lost over the last couple of years and hopefully something that we end up uh getting back time will tell i suppose so i had promised some audio of one of the first and I believe it is the first instances of an act like this being perpetrated on a profession or in a professional wrestling match in history on the other side of this audio is going to be my conversation with Dr. Mike Leno now in this conversation we're really going to get deep into the weeds about some of the big feuds that the Tolos brothers had. We're going to talk big time about the John Tolos Freddie Blassie feud, one of the greatest feuds, quite honestly, in professional wrestling history. Uh, we're going to talk about um, Mike Leno running the fan club, actually, of the Tolos brothers, and a lot of other interesting uh, anecdotes and side notes, and a lot of information that 
even if you think you know everything about the Tolis brothers, I think you're going to get proven wrong in this conversation. So, on the other side of this audio, my conversation with Dr. Mike Leto. This audio, from everything that I can gather, is the first time that a table spot was used in a professional wrestling match, and it happened with the Tolis brothers. So check out this incredible audio, and on the other side, my conversation with wrestling's first dentist, Dr. Mike Leno. Teddy Thomas working on Chris Tolis. Nandor is almost gone. He's being choked in a submission. Nandor reaching for the rope. Now John has him. He's whacking him away just above me. Look at the job that John and Chris are doing on Nandor. Yes, sir. The action supreme. And this is but a sample. Look out. Oh, he threw him right into my lap. Get him up. Look out. Easy. 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 Get him off. Look out. The Tolis brothers. Oh, I got a shot in the mouth. Nandor. Oh, I think they broke the table. The table is all gone. My microphone is broken. The standby mic. We need help. Oh, man. Look at the action. Fantastic action. Xander has John. They ran him together. Look at the tallest brothers. They're out of the ring. The crowd whacking at them across the way. All right, well, now that we've been uh, chatting quite a bit off air, but... Dr. Mike Leto, back for a third appearance on Grappling with Canada. It's my pleasure to have you back uh, to talk some Tolis Brothers today. Well, it gives me nothing but great pleasure to talk about two of the greatest legends. As you know, I'm a territory guy. I think I was unusual in terms of the magazine writer photographers from the late 60s on. That was my bucket list. I wanted to hit all of the territories because they were so unique, each one different whether it was the announcers like a Boyd Pierce or Hank Renner, Walt Harris in San Francisco or Vince Jr. starting, I think, 71, 72 for Tri-W. The fans, the refs, the timekeepers, the atmosphere, the TV, everything was so different and incredible. You know, it's sort of like today's wrestling. If you were to go one night to Impact, the next to AEW, to WWE, MLW, etc., you would find it, but... This was, you know, some states like Texas had three, four territories in one state. Yeah. And they were all different. Whether it was Fritz, Paul Bosch, uh, the Funks in Amarillo, or uh, uh, Blanchard in San Antonio, all different, completely different territories. Uh, sometimes they share some undercard guys, sometimes, you know, share some main event guys, but they'd have their, by and large, their own crew. It was amazing. And uh, that's why I love talking about the Tolis brothers. Uh, if I don't get this in, his John's son at John's funeral, I was one of the few from wrestling that went there, besides Mondo Guerrero and Jeff Walton and Rock Riddle, uh, asked me at the, the place, since I ran the Tolis Brothers International Fan Club, the only fan club they ever had, but uh, Chris Jr. named after John's brother. So, but that's what they called him, Chris Jr., even though he was John's son. Uh, he asked me to be Paul Bear at uh, John's 
funeral, which was kind of a big deal for me. And I got to speak a little bit about what John meant. But uh, Chris was every bit as important, too. So it pained me. The one Maple Leaf Garden show I came in because I loved that venue, had always wanted to shoot there, and seeing Chris have to be in an opener when in his heyday was the main eventer. When he came into Los Angeles in 72, he and John shot up and were our local area America's tag team champions, feuding with Keller Kowalski fresh out of Montreal's Grand Prix That's and right. Shibuya, the heel team. And uh, John and Chris were the greatest people to work for, and John in particular, the stuff he did, the magic. I mean, he was all over, both global guys, but John's magic in Los Angeles can't be denied. That was my home base territory as the ringside photographer. And John was magic. Obviously, the Fred Classy uh, feud, one of wrestling's longest. And, uh, well, we can talk about that. I, let me see if you get some questions before I motor mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But one thing that you did touch on in regards to uh, the funeral, I'm surprised that there was a, a lack of wrestling people at, at John's funeral. That's really surprising to me. Well, and, but it was still packed. It was packed with family and friends. Uh, John's ex-wife Ingrid came, and the I wouldn't say illegitimate daughter, but while he was married, he had a, a daughter with somebody in the Northeast, I think in the Boston area, and no one had ever seen her before. And this woman was extremely knowledgeable, beautiful, knew his history, and she came out. And that was John's daughter. Wow. So it made up for that. Wow. But wrestling funerals often happen, like, within days they announce the service, or in this case it was an open casket. But I'll never get that image of seeing a gangrene John with the open casket. I, it, I, you know, I wanted to pay my respects, but it, it was... You know, it was kind of horrific. He dropped a lot of weight like the Sheik did and mm -hmm. looked emaciated in there. Um, but like with Buddy Rogers thing, he died after a freak accident. He slipped in a supermarket when some fan asked him to autograph something. He was waiting in the checkout line. If you can imagine Buddy Rogers in the checkout line and uh, broke his elbow and in the hospital, they gave him a, an antibiotic he had a known allergy to. He died at yeah. the funeral days later so a lot of people can't plan you know these older guys in wrestling you know they need some time to get schedule their affairs plans, order, yeah fans you know to and from all of that stuff so um i've been to you know unlike andre's funeral which they paced it out well enough so tons of people from you know vince jr on down could go similar to owen hart's funeral which Nearly everybody in the business who meant anything was there, as well as Eddie Guerrero's funeral. But there are a lot of these, like the Brian Pillman thing, where there's not as many wrestlers as you would want or hope. But it's often because of scheduling conflicts. You know, if they're current wrestlers, you know, they're stuck. They can't quite get out of events they're advertised on. And then the, the older guys just need a little more than two, three, four days to book something. You know, they're flying cross-country, perhaps, from yes. California or to Florida or New York. So it, 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 I've been to funerals where there's X amount. Another funeral I served uh, as a Paul Bear too, who John Tolis had an amazing feud with in L.A., Pampero Furpo, in 74, 75. Uh, there were you know, X amount of people, including Dave Meltzer, at that one. 
uh, and some wrestling announcers like Dick Lane packed with wrestling people. So not always the case, but you know some of the roller derby legends you go and, and there's like nobody from roller derby. And this was, you know, these are major, major main event caliber stars. That's like wrestling on roller skates. Uh, stars from the 60s and 70s. So it's rough going to these funerals. But, but John's was a beautiful, an, an immaculate, uh, beautiful Greek Orthodox church. It was all white with gold fixtures. It looked like Donald Trump had something to do with all the gold fixtures. <laughs> it was everywhere you looked. But it was a gorgeous church, and it was packed. It, it was packed, but I wish more people from the wrestling industry had been there. And, and some said, like Gene LaBelle, when I nagged him as to why he didn't come, Judo Gene LaBelle, you know, lifelong friends with Tolis, John, uh, said he just wanted to remember John the way he was in his you know, glory. He heard it was going to be an open casket. He decided he just couldn't didn't go. Didn't want to see you know, so I, I, it. Yeah, it, 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 it's rough, but I've never not it was somebody that meant something somebody in my life like john Tolis. i gotta be there i wasn't at chris's or the sister that passed away that had i believe she had the same thing i have ms john and chris's sister who john was such a good brother he would make annual treks back home to help take care of the sister who chris was kind of saddled with and um, didn't get to pursue wrestling as much as he could have in the 70s when he's jobbing on either chic shows nearby home or at Maple Leaf, you know, not that far from, you know, it wasn't a long stretch for him to drive there yes. to either. Uh, that's pretty much it. I don't think he worked any Ohio or Buffalo, uh, Pedro Martinez, NWF shows uh, in concert with Johnny Powers. I think he jobbed a couple of times there, but you know, it's hard seeing or reading results of Chris Tull is jobbing. This guy is an incredible talent. And to hear, you know, John was state-of-the-art promos when he had the feud with Fred Blassie and yes. I'll shut up. But Chris came in, and the first time ever he worked as a babyface, I think the only place he worked as a babyface, because John had already turned babyface and was feuding with Killer Kowalski as our killer heel starting in February of uh, 1972. And then Chris comes in to help him battle Kowalski. And Chris could not pronounce any of the Hispanic wrestlers' names like Neil Mosteris. <laughs> Uh, or he couldn't even pronounce Kenji Shibuya, he called him Shibui, or Black Gorman and Great Goliath. Those were kind of easy compared to Raul Mata or Ray Mendoza, which Chris had a hard time with. But I, I have these audio tapes, and I was going to, we moved, but I was going to try to find them to play some audio for you. I'll send them to you in the future. But I taped from about late 71 on all of our TV, you know, just a regular old cassette deck the interviews uh, from Los Angeles and San Francisco TV. So I've got Chris watching all these wrestler names, but also they reprise their classic 50s and 60s bit where John would say something and Chris would go, you're absolutely right, brother John. That's right. <laughs> John, this is something Chris would say, to you, you're absolutely right, brother Chris. And But they were doing it as baby faces, and it was magic. It was really something. I guess it's an interesting thing that gets overlooked, and obviously we have, we have a whole lot to get into, but just uh, with Chris specifically, he could have had a much larger, much more involved wrestling career, but it was a family life, right? Because I believe he also took care of his mother, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, so he's she, he's still he he's stuck very close to home. Yeah, I mean he he was an excellent five star type chef. Uh, I don't know if you know much about his training on that, but he put out like two cookbooks. That's right. Yeah. 
And um, so he was quite the deal in terms of food, and John would always brag. And these brothers, you know, they uh, never a crossword between the two of them. And, uh, you know, they really had their heyday, you know, obviously the 50s, but primarily the 60s in various territories like in Boston, which kind of was oddly separate for a time from uh, the Tri-WF Capital Sports event senior, where John and Chris were tag champions, I think at least twice, feuding around 65 with another heel tag team, Agrella Monsoon and Killer Kowalski. So there is one of John's lifelong friends who he never, ever had a bad match with in Killer Kowalski. And um, just a thought, I don't think any footage exists. So have you found any footage of the Tolis brothers against Monsoon and Kowalski, heel versus heel? That had to have been, for the time, incredible heel or incredible tag stuff. I haven't seen any footage of that. I'm sure it's out there, but I haven't seen it yet. Well, you, you don't know, because when I was flown out in 92 uh, by uh, WWF, when the Ring Boy scandal and the steroid scandal were about to hit, and the journalists were flown in for a day at Titan Towers and to go tour the video facility. There was a lot of video uh, missing. A lot of Vince Senior stuff was not saved or was taped over because mm-hmm. the two-inch, the three-quarter-inch format tapes were expensive then. Oh, and that's uh, back and, when know, they used to reuse everything, too. Yeah, yeah. once it, it made all the towns, you would just recycle it and tape the next yeah. set of shows on three-quarter tapes. But I think they did a good job, but there's a lot of stuff that is completely missing. And that's why uh, their archivist, who I'm well aware of, been there, uh, Ben Brown, uh, you know, was looking at various guys who shot handheld without any audio at Madison Square Garden. There's two guys that shot from about 71 on, and uh, one guy sold it. You know, he had, like, uh, Bruno dropping the title to Ivan Koloff and whatever year that was, 71. And uh, the other guy had uh, uh, Stasiak beating Pedro, and then 10 days later, December 10, 73, Bruno beating Stan Stasiak at Madison Square Garden to get the, the strap back. Uh, but they didn't buy that footage. Anyway, I've seen all of that. Thank God there were guys doing it. And uh, uh, while I was shooting ringside at the Olympic Auditorium for the program, my best friend, actor comedian Richard Dawson's son Mark Dawson was filming from the front row and he caught audio of like Jimmy Lennon Jr. introducing everybody Tolis, Blassie, wow. The Sheik Neil Moskers, Bobo Brazil you know you name it and uh, so but that's really a very short window from 72 to about April of 75 and, and then uh, Mark and his brother Gary lost interest in wrestling and he stopped going I kept shooting of course but uh, I, I was shooting stills and the video that Mark shot of like the last meaningful Blassie Tolis matches in 1973 there were two uh, spaced two weeks apart at the Olympic Auditorium which was the primo house show venue for Mike LaBelle's territory you know Fred by that time he was just on his way over for, uh, for uh, his first ever Inoki New Japan tour because he had previously worked for uh Ricky Dozan's group, which morphed basically kind of morphed almost into with in terms of the staff and workers into Baba's All Japan in uh, late December 72, early January 73 for All Japan. Uh, and where Blast was like a mainstay for that group, he did multiple tours for uh, Baba. But then when 
New Japan signed up with uh, then Tri WF and Vince Senior, uh, the relationship changed, and then Bruno and Pedro and Blassi managing. Uh, uh, Let's see, Nikolai Volkov. That's when all the Tri WF guys switched from All Japan to New Japan, yes. and it was kind of earth shattering at the, the time. But so Blassie would, you know, he's either coming into LA to do business because he quit the territory. He and John quit after their August 1971 famous outdoor coliseum match, which was the greatest angle, and I've seen them all. I've seen Sabisco turning on Bruno. But the Blassie told us Monsel's powder that they stretched out like seven months filming Fred at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, California, you know, with a patch over his eye. And the hospital doctor was our own Dr. Bernhard Schwartz, <laughs> our boxing wrestling site doctor at the Olympic Auditorium. Why he is the attending physician for Blassie. But they filmed the stuff, they stretched it out, and then it drew you know, somewhere, it might be a work figure, but about 28,000, 29,000. So, like, the second longest big, huge global feud, Blassie told us, underneath it is the actual longest feud at that time, Sheik and Boba Brazil. Oh, yeah, second. that's right. And, and so, to have all this stuff, and we had our own version of Tolis Brothers against Monsoon, Killer Kowalski, and Heel Heel, for our local tag straps, uh, Shibuya and Saido, and that's Masa Saido, the real Saido, yeah. against Black Gorman and Goliath, who were huge in Mexico, even bigger. Okay, so you have that match, which reminded me in some ways, because it was very unusual to not just have a heel-heel match, but a heel versus heel tag match. You had Neil Moscaris against the original El Solitario, which stole the show. El Solitario, who died... I believe it was a car accident. If people haven't looked at him and only seen his son, Solitario Jr., is not even remotely as good. Solitario against Moscars in his prime, just absolutely incredible. Like the opening match had Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens on this show. Oh, my Paris goodness. Shire sent him down. So that was reminiscent of the good times in L.A. because we had a lot of shitty, not-so-good uh, periods, you know, like from 75 on. Uh, which was saved by the three years, seemed like three years of Chavo Guerrero versus Roddy Piper feud. But uh, la but anyway. cucaracha, la cucaracha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Roddy, Canadian Roddy, who was one of my best friends, and I was at both his funeral and his memorial. The memorial was held by his manager at the L.A. Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. This was a couple of weeks after the funeral, because Roddy was trying to. Uh, become a stand-up comic because the film and TV just wasn't happening for him and it was kind of devastating so uh, this guy uh, I can't think of his name who did the killer Steve Austin imitations on Mad TV uh, Will Sasso was working very closely with Roddy but I bring that up because Roddy when he came into our territory uh, and this will even bring me back to something further. I mentioned earlier that Fred Blassie and John Tolis quit on Mike LaBelle over the August. Mike LaBelle was the first promoter to ever do closed circuit TV. That's right. And he started with some of the three shows prior to the Outdoor Coliseum show, you know, capped by Blassie and John Tolis, which Blassie went over to get his revenge for being blinded by John Tolis back in like February of that year. And they stretched that angle out all of those months. I don't know if anyone's ever heard, other than Wardlow and AEW, of stretching out an angle for such a long period of time. But um, 
So Blassie and Tolis quit, and John quit on Mike LaBelle, and they quit over money, their, their share that they felt they should have gotten from the uh, closed circuit stuff leading up to that, and the L.A. Coliseum outdoor show. Uh, but John would always return. Blassie accepted Vince Senior's offer to become a manager and leave yeah. and move, sell his California house, move to Connecticut, work as a heel manager, starting with the first charge and Nikolai Volkov. But Tolis would always come back. And so when Roddy Piper came in, and it was supposed to just be for a couple of days, Red Bastine, who was booking for and with Paul Bosch in Houston, really was sending Roddy to San Francisco to Roy Shire. And he was going to come in, do our January 1975 Battle Royal and maybe TV and then go up to Roy. But our booker at the time, Leo Garibaldi, uh, saw something in Piper. So Piper came in. He debuts in L.A. that January, I think it was the 11th, 1976 Battle Royal, 1976. And like the third from the bottom in a 10-minute uh, Broadway as a babyface against an also babyface Tony Rocco who was a journeyman but great talent in New Japan, very good wrestler. And Leo Garibaldi, within a week when Roddy... Uh, so he worked with Roddy, who also picked John Tolis's brain for a couple of years, which is why I'm, I'm bringing up Roddy. But Leo Garibaldi had him start using the bagpipes and wear a kilt and do all of the stuff that he would later finesse. And John Tolis had been a part of... Uh, three and a half, four years, actually four years earlier, superstar Billy Graham came in as, I uh, forget the name Roy Shire penned on him in San Francisco, the American dream machine, you know, goofy because other wrestlers, including yeah. Desert Rose, <laughs> would take that. But the American spirit, I think that's actually what it was called. But he was wearing just leather chaps, like a leather cowboy jacket with chaps, the long pieces of leather hanging down in San Francisco. He comes down for us, debuts around February of 72, and for some reason, you know, John and uh, Jeff Walton, and I think Michael Bell and Gene worked with Billy Graham, who was kind of, you know, he'd already came in for us when he had jet black hair, yeah. same with Dr. Jerry Graham, no relation. Jerry Graham discovered him actually legit in Phoenix, Arizona, when he was driving to L.A. for us from Detroit, from Sheets territory. And um, so Billy Graham, you know, they had to bleach his hair, they had him start doing tie-dye, and he did that for about three months, feuding with John Tolis over the America's title. And at that point, we had some killer heels. We had Billy Graham, who, you know, he he done some great work in San Francisco for Shire, teaming with Pat Patterson before Pat turned face. They held the tag straps as heels until, you know, Pat turned babyface, etc. But... Billy Graham, with the tie-dye, developed that whole and started using the, the brand-new nickname. And John Tolis was a part of creating that superstar Billy Graham. And from there, he took the tie-dye to the AWA, began feuding with Wild McDaniel, worked for Paul Bosch in Houston, uh, Florida bit for Eddie Graham. And that's when Vince, he gets the call-up from Vince Sr. to take the strap from Bruno. You know, Bruno wanted yeah. the strap off of himself. So John Tolis had a big hand in that and also helped uh, Leo Garibaldi in 1976 finesse up Roddy Piper, teach him how to do promo skills, whereas Gene LaBelle was working on the in-ring stuff, teaching Roddy you know, more legit grappling because Roddy was uh, very green. And, and Tolis taught him how to be a great babyface, as uh, Roddy was quick to say. He learned 
earliest from. Uh, and Tolis was like his pseudo father before Don Owen in Portland became Roddy's true wrestling father because Roddy really didn't, you know, he claimed he didn't really know his biological dad and, and blah, blah, blah. So Tolis was one of Roddy Piper's earliest surrogates other than Red Bastine, in part Roy Shire, who Roddy said, you know, kind of disgusted him because he would spit cigar juice all over the floors wherever Roy <laughs> went. But anyway, so... Um, there we have that, that Coliseum thing. But obviously, John, you know, I was trying to find a late 40s, like a 1947, 48 picture of John Tolis as a total teen idol baby face. You know, like late 40s, might have been as late as 1950, where he has, for the time, kind of long, slick back hair. He didn't look like the Tolis we would know. Baby face Tolis. He's in a beautiful blue velour ring short jacket and he's holding like a giant Japanese bouquet of flowers you get as a wrestler <laughs> he hadn't yet debuted in Japan and it's this photo that was in like a uh, like a sports book you know where they devoted two pages only to pro wrestling and uh, I think it was put out by Time Life who publishes Sports Illustrated or did you know uh, I don't know if it was as far back as that I think Sports Illustrated went that far back but that was one of the first photos I'd ever seen or the earliest I can find of John as a wrestler and uh, he they had another photo of him team with Bo Brazil as a baby face wow so Tolis was a face and later a uh, kind of a mid-card heel in Los Angeles uh, like around 67 68 69 before when Fred Blassie turned face after a three cage bout spaced over Six weeks, so three matches total in the Blassie cage against the Sheik, where heel heel, where Blassie finally turns babyface in the area's longest heel since 1959. You know when you have that kind of uh, stretch as a totally hated heel, and you turn face, you know you become like the polar opposite, the greatest babyface ever, yeah. the greatest. And you've seen it a million times with guys like Flair when he turned face, but. Uh, and, and Tolis would do the same thing in late 71. After the August match, the blow-off thing where he drops the, the, the two out of three to Fred at the Coliseum, he slowly turned babyface. So I'm jumping around here, but it's memories like this. He, uh, he challenged Black Gorman for the America's Championship, who had defeated Blassie after destroying Fred's sombrero that a fan had given him. So Fred was so beloved you know, audience people would give him serapes to wear around his neck, this yep. classic, uh, or sombrero, which they would later give to Tolis in late 71, 72. <laughs> but it then, Tolis, before, right be, after the Coliseum show, but before he turned face, he began teaming up with another lifelong friend of he and Fred Blassie's and Dick Byer, the destroyer, who's got his own, you know, Ontario history. And John for the only time in his life put on well until he became Mr. California wrestler heel manager in 75 we didn't speak he's a heel manager but he doesn't say a word because <laughs> he lost the loser leave town match he turned heel by then again uh, at the time John held the record for turning face heel more times than any other wrestler in the 70s and that was in our LA territory but John is teaming with the destroyer for just like a couple maybe 10 days and John puts on a mask to match the Destroyer's mask, but it was called, it was a golden mask, but it looked exactly like the Destroyer's mask. And John 
gave no reason why he just put on a mask to cut promos. <laughs> now, you know, again, state-of-the-art promos, because Dick Byer could cut hellacious promos, as did Blassie, yeah. as did Lolas. And uh, he called it the Golden Mask. So he's teaming up, you know, just like a one-off. And then John fully turned face after Shibuya and Saito his heels for our December Christmas 1971 show. Uh, they turned heel on Tolis in a, a six-man tag, and then they tore off his clothes, you know, down his underpants, just like Ric Flair would do later on. And um, so for our Christmas show, it, because Giant Baba, Shohei Baba, was such a legend in Los Angeles after Ricky Dozan was even bigger and portrayed as just, you know, not as a stereotypical Japanese anything, just a normal guy who happened to be Japanese. So Tolis said, I'm bringing in big Baba. And so... They completely destroyed in a two out of three fall squash main event, Shibuya and Saito. John Tolis, for I think the only time, not even in his All Japan tours, did he ever team with Baba. So he's teamed with Baba, the most unlikely, you know, they called them the odd couples, how they were advertised. <laughs> maniac, or the Golden Greek John Tolis, before he became the maniac after turning heel, like February of 73 with Victor Rivera in the hair versus hair match, you know, which was a babyface, babyface match. John loses. Jimmy Lennon Sr. has to cut off John's hair. He's very respectful. He goes, okay, I lost. I have to have my head shaved now. He sits down, but after his head is shaved, he just turned mega heel, destroyed Victor Rivera after the Sheik had earlier that night had a title match uh, already with Rivera, uh, who was champion for us. And, uh, you know, then he becomes our greatest heel, you know, and Blassie. You know, left and, and Tolis would be there, but John would make occasional forays, not just to Ontario, but like in 74, 75, he would come in and do quite a bit of shots for his pal Red Bestine and his even greater pal Paul Bosch in Houston. Main eventing big time against Wahoo, against Red Bestine, against Johnny Valentine in dream matches, and, uh, and then he'd make appearances uh, in Kansas City for his pal Bob Geigel. And Maybe mid-card, you know, nothing happening. He appeared on, like, two Keel Auditorium shows when he was in Kansas City next door. And then he would go up uh, on occasion, take a vacation from L.A., or when he'd quit Mike LaBelle over money, and then would always return. But he'd go up to Vancouver and work with his pal Stanley of Jonathan, yeah. Gene Kanifke, Stasiak, Dutch Savage. Those guys maybe do a couple of shots in Portland, Oregon for Don Owen. But, you know, John was an in-demand guy, and John had X amount of All Japan tours after working for Ricky Dozan's Japan Pro Group, and then All Japan. But then he, too, switched when our office switched to Inoki's All Japan, and uh, John had one big tour where he wrestled uh, Inoki almost every single night, or Seiji Sakaguchi, wow. a United National uh, big title feud with in both Japan all, well, All Japan hadn't even started yet, so it was still Japan Pro uh, with Sakaguchi in 71. Like, uh, John was still a heel there. Uh, and it was after that window between the Coliseum match and then turning babyface uh, a little bit later on. But the John had two big matches over the United National Championship, which he dropped to Seiji Sakaguchi, who uh, for X amount of time was with Baba in All Japan before he switched over to uh, Inoki's group. Now, something that we've completely glossed over, and I feel like we should uh, investigate and expand a little bit on, is, so you're in, in uh, California, 
the Tolles brothers naturally are from Hamilton. So how does a guy from California end up running the fan club for the Canadian wrecking crew out of Hamilton? How did that come to be? Greek, the Greek Canadian wrecking crew. I was already maybe a year into co-running Fred Blassie's fan club with John Arisi. Um, my immediate boss in the Los Angeles wrestling territory had run in the 60s Fred Blassie's International Fan Club, Jeff Walton. And uh, he got hired as the publicist and to make the program. So he was my immediate boss since I worked for him and got paid by him to shoot ringside for our program. And I was the only one of our three photographers that included PWI, Stan Weston's legend, Theo Aaron, who was my photographer, trainer, sensei, and uh, Dan Westbrook, who really only shot for Japan for X period of time. But I was shooting for Japan as well as every other magazine. We had, like, for a time in the early to mid-70s, maybe up through 77, we had, like, 15 different monthly wrestling magazines on newsstands. I worked for all of them. There was Norm Keitzer, had Wrestling Review and Wrestling Monthly. There was Wrestling World, my editor there, Lou Sahadi. I was already at Stan Weston's magazines even before Bill After came aboard as you know senior editor a bit later in 72, early 72, late 71. Uh, Tommy Kay's two wrestling mags, Wrestling Guide, Big Book of Wrestling, Ring Wrestling, that my editor was Tom Burke, legendary historian who has a lot of ties with Grand Prix of Montreal. He still has the Grand Prix world title that was sold to him. I don't know where the tag straps are. The Vashon Brothers' great promotion during what I feel is the greatest territory war, second only to Bruiser Sheik in Detroit, was Montreal. Rougeau's versus Vashon Grand Prix, which was amazing. And then you had also that period of time and Tolis came and did one shot uh, for her uh, against Bruno Sammartino was Annie Gunkel taking on the entire Georgia NWA office that's right yeah in the Georgia Wars yeah well because she felt dissed when her husband Ray Gunkel died in the ring against Ox Baker you know it wasn't uh, Ox's fault but uh, and so she took him on and for like two years she outdrew them many times and that office head booker uh, of a team of bookers, they all brought in all these heavyweight guys, was Bill Watts. So how does Annie Gunkel build, beat the all-powerful <laughs> of Bill Watts? She did. The amazing woman uh, and, and the first female promoter, unless we count Joyce Farhat, the Sheik's wife, who co-ran the Detroit wrestling office quietly with the Sheik. You know, so we did have powerful women. But... and. Um, but anyway, um, so I'm running the Blassie fan club, with, but I was only the vice president. I was second in command of the Blassie fan club. So we took it over, the Blassie fan club, and asked my boss, Jeff Walton, hey, can we continue on the fan club? Because you had to give it up to become the publicist for Mike LaBelle, our L.A. promoter. And he goes, sure, just ask John. So I asked John, I asked Chris, and had him sign the paperwork in 72, and uh, I just felt like doing it. I go, well, I'm doing it for my, you know, my two, my favorite, one of my favorite guys in Fred Blassie. And I go, Jesus, John Tola, John and Chris never had a fan club, really. I tried to look back on the records. Did they have anything in the 60s? Nothing. So I ran it. And um, the interesting thing about the Tolis Brothers fan club, and John really helped. Fred helped us a lot, and John helped, too. You know, he always said, anything you need, interview, anything for the Bolton. Because this was before the sheets. 
And so my Tolis brothers, I, I, with John Arisney and I, we won all the awards at the 1975 WFIA. That was our, the fan club thing that would recognize bulletins, yep. best fan. So we won everything, best fan club, fan club bulletin of the year. And um, two years later, I won all the awards on my own for the Tolis Brothers fan club. But the interesting so we all of us old timers, whether it's Mick Karch with the Bachwinkle Brigade, and he did a great first class newsletter, or Rondo Bratz, who produced like the best looking newsletter, uh, I forget what it was called. He was out of Chicago, but it covered the territory. So I thought with my Tolis Brothers fan club bulletin, the reason we did that it was a way to communicate communicate to others and express ourselves and most fan club bulletins like George Ann Macropolis was one for Buddy Rogers or Bruno you know every single page was on the the namesakes Bruno or Rogers or Chet Wallach Johnny Valentine's tag partner in my case I looked at Rondo Bratz's newsletter which was not a fan club but it was a newsletter covering results in like Illinois and Missouri and uh, I, and I, I, I go, well, I want to cover the entire world. You know, I'm writing for Ring Wrestling, and Tom Burke was writing about wrestling in England and South Africa and Canada, places that you may not have heard of. And so I amassed at my peak, and I had to give up the fan club when I went to dental school. Uh, and I moved from L.A. to San Francisco. I wanted to, you know, get away for a time from my parents, you know, as any kid does, to sow my oats and date as many girls as possible without my parents (laughs) and uh, and so you know I moved 400 miles up north but I had to give up the fan club and Dr. Tom Pritchard said he would watch my collection so he gives me 500 as a uh, a bond he would watch my wrestling collection while I went to dental school little did I know he ended up keeping it and his check bounced so to this day I mean, I had, like, tons of gong magazines. I had the Meal Mosphorus Gong Japan book, a book, like, 300 pages devoted to Meal Mosphorus from, like, 1972, 73. And it it kills me that I entrusted that to my old pal Tom Pritchard, who came in one of his first territories wrestling as a green boy, a piss boy, after Houston, you know, his native Houston was for us in L.A. He came in and... Cowboy Tom Pritchard. This was before the fake doctor title. I don't know where he got that title, but so anyway, I at my heyday with the Tolis Brothers fan club. I still would have some stuff on them, whatever they were doing, but from what I saw with Rondo Bratz's newsletter, with Tom Burke's physical magazine, Ring Wrestling, I started covering all the territories, and I amassed about eighty-eight correspondents. I had three people, including Japan's all-time number one photographer writer Koichi Yoshizawa is one of my regular correspondents sending me ticket stubs programs posters and his photos to put in the bulletin and I had two others Dave Meltzer who wrote he and I had been corresponding and became good friends Uh, he was doing the California Wrestling Report which covered basically just Roy Shire results the territory but he would send me stuff to put in my newsletter and Arizzi sent me stuff in because I had every territory covered but not just in the u.s and canada folks in montreal toronto winnipeg uh etc calgary but uh, some of the hart brothers sending me stuff there eddie gilbert and Cornette were my two first subscribers to the tolls brothers oh no way (laughs) they were and they were like me ringside photographers they started out as ringside photographers 
them in the Goulas and, uh, and later Jarrett uh, before, the, you know, Jimmy became a great manager and Eddie Gilbert, an incredible talent. And I was there when Eddie debuted in both Kansas City and at Keele Auditorium. In Kansas City, teaming with his dad, Tommy, in a tag match against Bruiser Bob Sweetan and Akio Sato, who would later become a part Bob is number two in the All Japan office, and you were most people more recently in the '80s remember him as part of whatever that team was with the mask guy uh, managed by Fuji in, in WWF. That was Akio Sato. But anyway, uh, so I covered like wrestling in England and South Africa and the Indian promotion in India and you know everywhere and the burgeoning stuff because then we only had three promotions in Japan the AWA affiliated IWE where guys like Superstar Graham and the Vashans and Billy Robinson would wrestle and I think IWE uh, was there before it was before All Japan and New Japan and that's where Andre we're going to talk about you know Canadian fame and Andre became Machine Ferre and was really finessed by Carpentier and the Vashans Leo and Killer Kowalski in Montreal's Grand Prix. But before that, and, and when he was summoned to Montreal, he worked an IWE show where Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson were paired with him in like tags and six mans wow. to finesse this guy. Yeah. Imagine he, the amount of knowledge in the ring at one time for that type of match. That's yeah. incredible. Well, that's why when Inoki started, unlike Baba, who, you know, when Baba started All Japan, he had. You know, the more show-busy wrestlers, Blassie, King Curtis, uh, Tiger Singh early on, The Sheik, guys like that to start with. But Inoki, to give New Japan credibility in December of 72, the very first guys he booked in were Thez and Carl Gotch for that wow. credibility. Yeah. That's as impressive as it gets. And then, then he brought in Johnny Valentine and Johnny Powers, who were more, you know, the classic pro wrestling, you know, and, and nobody greater than Johnny Valentine, who, you know, amazing guy, had... Not as many Maple Leaf Garden main events against the Sheik as he should have, but um, anyway. But uh, so I'm covering all of this stuff, and it was like I I, I come out public and say, "Geez, if I had only continued this beyond '82 and Meltzer started the Observer, that's kind of like what I felt happened." Here I'm covering in a newsletter, and my newsletter sometimes is 40, 50 pages long. Wow! And I, <laughs> I'm xeroxing ticket stubs from Mexico City and Japan of course for those three promotions IWE which is AWA affiliated All Japan and New Japan uh, until you know the weird stuff happened because All Japan was getting Tri-WF wrestlers and NWA wrestlers that's where the money deal for Briscoe to drop the strap to Giant Baba for a week like eight days time and then regain it before he left Japan uh, occurred and uh you know, I guess Inoki somehow made the play to get the WWF guys, and then that's when Tolis came in when the WWF guys started and got his, uh, I think it was just one New Japan tour after so many All Japan tours yeah. for Bob, etc. Chris, I can't recall, I was trying to do research, he must have done at least one tour with John for Ricky Dozan's group, but I can't find proof of that, uh, or, you know, a, a lot else of Chris, other than working predominantly for uh, Tunney and, and and maybe later the Bear Man, uh, McKigney in, in Ontario, obviously a lot of undercard stuff for the Sheik. And you look at the guys that Chris Tolis was hanging around with in Detroit, for example, Dr. Jerry Graham, 
uh, Tokyo Tom Ray Urbana, who would later become the first great kabuki with face paint before the real All Japan, you know, great kabuki most people, you know, remember from Georgia Championship and World Class. Uh, and, uh, and Ernie Roth, who was a close friend of Chris Tolis's for the Sheep Territory, later Creechman, because Chris could speak fairly decent French. Uh, I mean, X amount of words. So he could pronounce that, but he couldn't pronounce Japanese or Mexican wrestling names. <laughs> Maybe it was a work because Chris was portrayed uh, versus John Tolis, who was more uh, an area, not erudite, but, you know, he would sometimes reference real things happening in the news, whereas Chris was more the blue collar brother of the Tolis brothers. And maybe that was kind of a work on Chris's part. Uh, you know, he's a D's and D's type guy versus John, who was perhaps one of the greatest promo guys ever in the history of the biz. And most everybody would 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 say so. Whether it was, uh, you know, there's that period when John was the liaison from the Los Angeles Lavelle office to Vince McMahon Senior's Tri WF, and he would, you know, go back and forth. He would sometimes supervise and send in the, some of our talent, like. They never teamed, but he'd send in Black Gorman separately, then Great Goliath separately in 76, Chavo, and then Piper, uh, you know, would do just like one shot so they could say they worked at Madison Square Garden. But Bruno in 75 had that, uh, sadly, wasn't a very long match against Bruno, who beat him with the bear hug, um, or the backbreaker, I'm sorry, the backbreaker. And John had cut individualized promos we watched him do them at KCOP Channel 13 Studios in Hollywood for Vince Senior only to use because Vince's TV had not yet come that's right, LA. Yeah. so they cut the promos in advance of John going there to meet Bruno but while John was there he was doing LaBelle office work in the office of Vince Senior with Monsoon and uh, oh gosh uh, Phil Sacco you know, because Willie Gelsenberg, I don't really think, did much. It was more Monsoon and Phil Zacco and one other promoter with uh, Vince Sr. in the office. And obviously, Arnie Scoland, who was a uh, tight friend of uh, Tolis. John was like friends with everybody in the business, whether it was Monsoon or Johnny Valentine or, as I mentioned, Red Bastine or Spiris Arion, because John made at least one Australia tour for Jim Barnett that a lot of people forget. And when you look at all the incredible heels that went in and out of, uh, or some of them stayed, like King Curtis and Abby, stayed for great periods of time. But Killer Carl Cox, team with Killer Kowalski, and Tolis going in there, and Ray Stevens as a heel. Uh, you know, so John was global. Uh, and John and Fred Glassie often bitched in the locker room at the Olympic Auditorium because it was difficult for them because they worked on one side, whereas I think the lucha guys from Moscris on the real guys not guys who were born in the US or had their history all of their wrestling history like Pepper Gomez or Ricky Romero or the Torres brothers that really didn't have that history in Mexico or Mexico City the Luteroth promotions but John and Fred would agonize that they had to now learn how to work the other side with the Mexican yeah. guys <laughs> Neil Moscris and Ray Mendoza and Raul Reyes and Raul Mata, Raul Carlos Mata, etc. And uh, you know, John did far better than Blassie. And in fact, I think the boys all voted John as the guy who did the best working that other side 
and learning it very quickly. And then when he was heel, for example, with Victor Rivera or Ruben Juarez or Hispanic guys, you couldn't do this now. But John gave a lot of state-of-the-art anti-Hispanic, anti-Mexican promos, like the infamous one with, uh, I think it was with Moscas, where he would, take a bite of a taco, a burrito, a tamale, and spit them out. Yeah. Take one bite. <laughs> and he would spit it out. Have you ever seen that one? I've seen Pretty that one, clear. yeah. Is it online anywhere? It, it used to be on uh, Daily Motion. I I have to see if it's still on there or not. Daily Motion? Yeah, I think it was. I, last time I saw it, I swear it was on there. Well, yeah, please let me know, because I have the audio, the entire audio of it. I have, like, every interview such you know I tried to be meticulous with my record keeping and, and of history but every Blassie every Tolis pretty much everybody's promos you, I, sometimes I would do the commentary uh, from former movie TV star Dick Lane who was our English announcer we had two shows in LA and it was weird and John would say he'd get frazzled because on Saturday nights in Hollywood was KCOP 13 90 minutes all English with Jimmy Lennon Sr. doing color and ring announcing to Dick Lane, the movie TV star actor who was one of the all-time greats, maybe a peg at that time in the 70s, early 80s, down below Gordon Soley for commentary. Whereas uh, Stu Hart's announcer, what was his name? Ed Whalen. Ed Whalen, yeah. One of the worst announcers ever because (laughs) a lot of the time Ed just did not like wrestling. You know, he was sort of obliged to do it, whereas Dick Lane and Gordon Sola, you could tell, or Boyd Pierce, you could tell those guys. Or that. even Paul Bosch doing his commentary, or Bill West, they love the business. Um, so uh, what was what was I getting on to about this? Uh, oh, well, so then John, on, we lost uh, another, uh, in 1970, we lost our other second wrestling show of the week, on KTLA and all English, you know, our strongest in you know non-network channel five, and it moved to channel thirty-four, a Hispanic station. That was the birth of the Spanish International Network that would syndicate our Wednesday night lucha libre from the Olympic Auditorium shows to parts of New York, parts of uh, Massachusetts like Boston, and parts of Florida like Miami, where there's a Hispanic population, and they would start getting our TV from about late 72, early 73 on, and and John would be interviewed by Miguel Alonso and or Luis Magana, the Hispanic guys, they would ask him questions in Spanish, and he was like supposed to know, you know, but he would respond in English, so there'd be no translation, they would ask these questions in Spanish, and John, you know, kind of knew in advance a hey, question one is this in English question two is that he yeah. didn't really understand never really learned Spanish as he did like Chris did with you know fairly decent get by French uh, but that was just part of uh, of that stuff and you could not do that stuff today where you were dogging Hispanic people <laughs> calling them up vendors like when he had cut some of the pronos with Bruno or any I think some of those have to be online because people taped them on Betamaxes Tolis's promos against Bruno shown on Tri-WF TV either Philly or Hamburg you know he had been seen at two weekly shows and uh, John is calling Bruno a spaghetti bender but in LA he would call the Hispanic wrestlers like Victor Rivera etc. Uh, taco benders <laughs> so 
you, you couldn't say that stuff in our politically sensitive world nowadays. But then it was, uh, we were just going, oh man, can you believe, you know, I mean, I don't think any territory had anybody, not Jackie Fargo, not Jerry Lawler, you know, biting into some nationalistic food, even in Hawaii, like King Curtis biting into poi and spitting it out and saying this tastes like cement. John was like the first to do that. John was also the first, I, jumping around, but against Blassie before the Coliseum show in like 1970, not Jake Roberts. The first guy to ever bring a python snake into wrestling was John Tolis. That's right. In the surprise box. So he, for two weeks, he kept scaring Blassie. You're not going to be prepared for what's in my surprise box. I bring the ring in the middle of the ring. And when he did, he pulled out this snake you know, the Python, and he's like holding it, and, and people were gasping. You know, I'm shooting pictures, people are gasping. The other cool thing, there's so many firsts that John Tolis did in LA. I know I'm talking about LA, but, you know, I, I didn't miss anything that Tolis did there. And uh, he and Fred had a, a dog collar thing, but since both of their finishes were knee drops, they had studded with spikes, sharp spikes. Uh, they had these leather things around their neck with spikes on them. So that meant neither guy was going to do their knee drop. Yeah. You know, that would prevent it because they didn't want to pierce their knee. So all these crazy, insane, they must have had a jillion matches. And the place was sold out 10,400 every Olympic Auditorium show. And then they would have ancillary matches at our smaller city venues for Mike LaBelle, El Monte, all the dinky cities. San Diego, which wasn't a dinky city, but, you know, the prize venue was the Olympic Auditorium every other Friday night. So it's San Diego Mondays, I think Tuesday was El Monte, there was Bakersfield, San Bernardino, Ventura County on the beach up north, uh, occasionally Reno, Nevada, and Vegas. And you could have pairings of like um, Tolis Blassie, but in 72, when the Tolis brothers were just insanely popular baby faces, uh, I shot... The Tolis Brothers against Sheik and Ernie Roth as Abdullah Farouk. In a, uh, and Farouk, of course, the only time he got in the ring was at the end. Uh, and Chris, uh, I think, put a submission on him uh, for that one. But we would have these, you know, they would have unique matches we never got at the uh, Olympic Auditorium because I don't think I can even recall Ernie Roth, Abdullah Farouk, uh, as Sheik's manager in Detroit ever wrestling a, uh, a tag with the Sheik or even getting in the ring other than being locked in the small cage above the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened. And, and during Blassie's three cage matches with the Sheik that finally turned a babyface, in all three of them, I think actually maybe just the last two, Ernie Ross suspended above the ring in the small cage. And it's he wild. was like throwing... He's throwing gimmicks like the pencil down to the yeah. sheet <laughs> on Fred. But Dave Bersinski was at the Coliseum show, and he got these pictures backstage, you know, breaking kayfabe, and they hadn't been seen at all until Dave finally put them in one of his books. And I have, you know, copies of them because it meant a lot to me because Tolis and Fred, after their main event, both bloody after the L.A. Coliseum match, they got their arms around each other, best of friends backstage where the marks couldn't see them. And, uh, you know, that was really for August of 71, breaking kayfabe to the max. You just didn't hear about it. I would always 
watch my P's and Q's when I was shooting in the dressing room. Like, yeah. whatever the end of the champion came in, whether it was Dory Jr. or Terry or Harley, you know, I'd ask them to pose in our dinky Olympic Auditorium locker room, but I would respect the heels and faces because they're all down there. You know, I wouldn't say a word, even though I was smart. wouldn't say a word, you know, just do my thing and get out of there so I can get my photos. That's all I wanted was to shoot pictures and stuff. But Dave was the one who captured Freddie and John Tolis and uh, man, that was like the greatest, greatest feud. And I think I've seen a lot, a lot of great feuds. Flair Steamboat, etc. cetera. Uh, Jerry Park, Heel Heel, Mad Dog Vashon against Keller Kowalski, the first of the Jerry Park Spectaculars. Uh, so much so. So just circling back to a couple of things that we touched on, in terms of, and you were said how, you know, told us Blassie's probably one of the greatest feuds or maybe the greatest feud that you ever witnessed live what is the lasting legacy of that feud in the la territory is that something that people still bring up to this day oh yeah i held um uh high spots mike bucci's WrestleCon, the third and last they did it three years in uh los angeles they had you know it wasn't around wrestlemania then and 2012 was the last one and somebody that was going to do the opening event dropped out. And so I had like three, four days, and Mike Bucci asked me to do an opening welcoming event of the three-day convention. Okay. And I decided, first I was just going to do a slideshow, my photos of L.A. wrestling history. Then I thought, I want to turn this into a Los Angeles Territory tribute reunion with everybody still alive. And I had uh, Bill Anderson, who wrestled for us as a job guy in the later 70s, drive Billy Graham in from Phoenix. I had Dick Byer fly in with Wilma from Buffalo. Uh, Roddy Piper came down from Portland. Uh, all of the guys still alive, Mondo and, uh, and Chavo Sr. Guerrero, all of our jobbers, all of our office people, Judo Jean LaBelle, Jeff Walton, our publicist, uh, Art Williams, our referees that were still alive, our jobbers. And I... and. So that was the opening welcoming event, this tribute to the L.A. Territory, where I had three screens all showing different stuff, uh, like Tola Splassy footage. But before that, we had uh, Dick Lane calling Ricky Dozan against Blassie that was yeah. shown in Japan. And that's where we got that footage. We're showing that. So we had three screens going. We have all the wrestlers taking turns at the microphone, paying tribute to each other. I did uh, – I put together a uh, – slideshow with music saluting LA from 1932 on you know when we could trace it back because the Olympic Auditorium was built for the Olympics as a boxing venue in 32 for the LA Olympics and um, you know all of that stuff from you know, until when uh, Mike LaBelle sold our territory to Vince Jr. and of all things before Vince went national December 83, January 84, the earliest. But uh, Vince Jr. bought our ter territory from Mike LaBelle December of 82. You know, our territory had been dying a slow death for like two years with Adrian Street and Diamond Timothy Flowers from, uh, you know, the, the northwest part of Canada. Not that they weren't great, but... It wasn't know, the same. Most of the card, yeah, it, it was... Most of the card, people couldn't appreciate guys like Los Brazos and the Vianos, all these incredible connect. They would become later huge lucha names, but they were, it was predominantly that. And then the, the worst thing that was the kiss of death for our territory was uh, not John Tolis' lead heel and last America's champion, but 
Gene LaBelle going from commentator, you know, simple on-air commentator to our lead heel, feuding with a newly turned babyface Peter Mavia. Uh, and that just was the last straw of the territory died. But Vince Jr. buying our territory December of 82. And he promised Mike LaBelle, you know, that he would be listed as the West Coast promoter and he would have some duties and get, you know, uh, a bone and some paydays and stuff, which didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Vince Jr. and Vern Gagne were picking the bones. Roy Shire quit the same. Actually, he quit in January of 82, and they were going to start promoting in San Francisco. And Roy Shire goes to the L.A. Times, and I know this because John Tolis called me up and said, you can't believe it. Uh, Roy Shire went to not the San Francisco Chronicle, the top paper there, but the L.A. Times to expose the business and try to ruin it for Gagne and Vince Jr. bringing in house shows in uh, you know the next month, February 1982, to San Francisco. <laughs> Vince had not reached going beyond the, tr- the WWF's territory boundaries of his dad, and that was the first remnants. And Tolis was there to see it, and he worked you know jobbing or in second or third from the bottom matches for the earliest uh, WWF house shows in L.A. on their West Coast swings, both San Francisco and L.A. John was also oh, so. And let, let's get to your questions before I get in. You know, my, my point in, in motor mouthing it here is John in particular. Although Chris was fantastic, the Tolis brothers, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. I would you know include him with the Graham brothers and uh, Lewin and Curtis and the Bastine brothers and. Uh, uh, Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard, all of the greatest legendary tag teams, you know, not including today's teams like the Bucks, etc. But John Tolis in particular was just such an amazing, amazing singles tag wrestler. No matter what he did, it was magic. He had a real mind for the business, but he never took over his head booker. You know, he would just offer suggestions and stuff. So let me, that's why I'm passionate about him. What are some of your questions for a yeah, I guess, I, I guess my, my one of the last ones, that maybe this will be a good one to kind of end off on, is you brought up... Oh, oh that's my point. We ended, I ended my, my little documentary, my slideshow with video, with the music, with Tola Splassy. So that's the lasting legacy of John's imprint on California, is main event or to the end, heel or face, always main events for Los Angeles... I mean, he feuded with Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd destroyed him uh, as a face in 72, sent John Packing up to Ontario in around June of 1972. And uh, and Tolis comes back stronger than ever, you know, after a hiatus. And the fans really would miss Tolis. He was similar to Blassie in that Jeff Walton, on, on a night in 72, like he did in 71 with Blassie, he gave everybody, everybody that bought a ticket got a John Tolis mask, one of those cheap cardboard things oh, with a rubber yeah, band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got the eyes and the nose hole. So to see everybody, nearly everybody in the audience wearing a Tolis mask at the height of his babyface uh, majesty in 1972, you know, pretty emotional stuff. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, and... You know, just you can hear it. You can hear the passion, right? Speaking with someone like yourself who wasn't like you're not just a historian in this aspect of it, right? Like you ran the fan club, you 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 hung out with them in person. You you 
you oh, know. I didn't even talk about the food fight he had when he was managing the million dollar baby, Greg Valentine, fresh. Okay, off we got to hear that then. <laughs> Maybe that'll was, be the last uh, one to leave us off. Well, where uh, he was working as uh, uh, Johnny Fargo, you know, the NWF tag champs with Donnie Fargo, no relation at all, no relation to Jackie Fargo. But Babyface Nelson went from using that gimmick uh, to that. And the first place he debuted under his not really given name because that was like Greg Wisniewski, whatever Johnny Valentine's real last name was. But he comes into our territory for the first time as Greg Valentine. But as he would do later on when he went to uh, Dallas, uh, he, he was uh, in Houston. He was called the brother of Johnny Valentine. This is Greg. But John Tolis is managing him. He comes in uh, late 70, let's see, late 73. And, uh, in, and he debuts in a battle royal where immediately Lonnie Maine goes after because Lonnie Maine was a great friend of Johnny Valentine. So he immediately, and I snapped the only pictures of Greg Valentine locking up with Lonnie Moondog Maine. But anyway, so John in, uh, oh God, about January or December 74 on for about three, four months is managing Greg Valentine as his million dollar baby. It's the first time, to my knowledge, Greg uses the Valentine name, and we uh, KCOP was off of uh, Fairfax Boulevard, uh, maybe three blocks, three four blocks south of Sunset, and five six blocks south of Hollywood Boulevard. You know the epicenter, the Sunset Strip being Sunset Boulevard, and we're at the nearby McDonald's about three hours before the KCOP Channel 13 TV studio Saturday night tapings, and I forget what the ruckus was about. Uh, they were arguing over some bit of wrestling history, and Greg started, just threw a couple of French fries at John, and John threw his Big Mac and fries at Greg, and it was like food all over the place. We were asked to leave. It was just the three of us. We were asked to leave, and uh, actually I think Mark Dawson might have been there too, Richard Dawson, the actor, uh, you know, my, one of my best friends ever, but he was Richard Dawson, the Family Feud guy, the Hogan's Heroes guy, the Laughing guy, married to Britain's uh, Marilyn Monroe, Diana Doors. Anyway, so it's four of us. They're having this brief food fight. We're asked to leave, and uh, it, it, it should have gotten notoriety because I snapped pictures of it the way the Kent Patera, Masa Saito thing did at, uh, what was it, a uh, Burger King, and then later on the Jim Cornette incident with Wendy's. Yeah, uh, Gary Queen. Wrestling fast food lore, but these wrestlers having a mock food fight, just having fun. I mean, I shot another one, 90, January 6th of 1991 at a Tenru show in Japan uh, at Karakuen Hall, where in the back they were paired as tag team. Uh, Killer Tim Brooks and Bob Orton Junior had a uh, food fight. They're, they didn't like their food in their bento box. So they started throwing food at each other. And then Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, Jeff Jarrett were also on the tour with Naoki Sano, fresh out of New Japan, in a feud with Jushin Liger. And everybody started throwing food there until Jack Lanza, the agent for WWF, working in concert with Tenru's group, came and screamed and, you know, <laughs> cleared everything up. That, that was Jack Lanza, but that was a famous I think the first famous to my knowledge unless Buddy Rogers and Johnny Valentine did anything in restaurants which they probably did in the late 50s the first wrestling restaurant even though it was a fast food you know 
kind of a dumpy McDonald's, and the McDonald's is still there where they had the food fight. <laughs> <on Saturday. laughs> That's funny. Yeah, south of Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. That's funny. Any other quick questions? I th- I think we've covered a ton of ground tonight. Uh, is there anything that well, you we? You know what? I gotta say this. I gotta say this because before Bret Hart would make sure they introduced him from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, making you know paying tribute to a great city, wonderful Canadian town. John Tolis and Chris, but John in particular, from his debut in L.A. in the around '67, always had to be introduced as from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And, you know, it was like a lengthy introduction to pay tribute to Canada. And John felt very strongly about, uh, you know, his roots because so many guys, I mean, that was a hotbed of talent coming out of uh, uh, Hamilton. Yeah, whatever. A lot of tremendous, tremendous talents. And uh, that's why I couldn't understand Vince doing the uh, that, that thing with Brett when he turned Brett heel, you know, towards the end before Brett left. And, uh, you know, you, you, were, you were having, like, Canada portrayed his heels, which was complete asinine <laughs> We should be celebrating. Like, all of the guys loved going up there. I mean, look at, uh, you know, even though kind of he was out of Vancouver, I don't know if he was really truly Canadian, but Don Leo Jonathan and Kaniski and Killer Kowalski, these total greatest wrestlers of all time, heel or what have you, loved Canada and so many guys the Funk Brothers loved Terry said it was yeah. like one of his places to go was working in Calgary so all of these guys these legends love Canada I don't know why not celebrate Canada instead of like the classic Vince McMahon maybe that's why all the karma is visiting Vince now is because for a time <laughs> before, wouldn't that be something eh wrestling worked stuff what, what does Canada think of the Vince thing? Are the papers covering it? The TV covering it, like ours have? They're covering it, not as much as as in the states. It's more of more of us wrestling fans are are, are all over it, and we're just kind of waiting oh, to no, see what happens. Because our strongest, the the wrestling station from like 1949 until 1970, KTLA five, our strongest non ABC, NBC, CBS network station. They like three times already. Their entertainment reporter on the regular news and they repeated it hourly because it's almost news all day long yeah the first two wall street journal articles the guy was reading from it and showing vince footage so that was on (laughs) a big california news channel you know it's part of the cw network but you know from like four in the morning until two in the afternoon and then from uh, 4 o'clock on, it's all news. And so they repeated, especially the first Wall Street Journal article, yeah. it was that segment, they re-showed it during every broadcast. The same <laughs> thing. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not good for the business. I, I hope it gets washed away, gets resolved, because, you know, it's casting advertisers and stuff. It might even affect... We don't want it to affect advertisers for other groups like AEW that might say, oh, this wrestling stuff yeah the Vince you don't want it casting a a taint if I can say that word a taint on uh pro wrestling promotions because (laughs) that's just limited to him and none of the uh wrestlers you know they weren't involved in it in WWE you know that home base so I I just hope it goes away and you know whatever punishment happens happens and let's move on yeah I agree with that for sure 
Well, listen, Mike, this was an absolute blast chatting with you. Uh, I know I took up a lot more of your time than we intended, but this was such great conversation. And uh, I just what a wealth of knowledge just in regards to the Tolles Brothers that you had to bring to the program today. I'm really, really well, happy. I mean, I, I can't really comment on their, their 50s stuff, really. Uh, but John was a journeyman all over the place, you know, and so I'm not as good a historian as I should be on the 50s. Tolis, but I, I know X amount on the 60s. You know, the guy worked like everywhere, and I haven't even talked about Buffalo. Like another John Rib, I don't know if we're still taping, but this is okay to say. Another John Rib was when Pedro Martinez, well, he didn't pronounce it Martinez, and John would often say, All the other Hispanic guys that have that as a last name, they call it Martinez, like Luis Martinez. Yeah. But it, Pedro is Pedro Martinez, notorious for stiffened guys. He was like, the North's version of Gus, uh, of, uh, uh, what's his face in Memphis, uh, before uh, Jared, who really wasn't a bad, he was not a bad promoter at all. But Nick Goulas was infamous for low paydays, you know, which really weren't as bad as some other territories like Kansas City. But anyway, so we have a cauliflower alley. It's like 1994, and for the very first time, Pedro Martinez and Mike LaBelle are coming. And they both owed these two promoters at their only Cauliflower Alley reunions when we had it in L.A. at the Sportsman's Lodge, their first ever and only times, maybe because of this. John organized ahead of time anybody that was owed money by either at Michael Bell in L.A. or Pedro Martinez in Ohio, parts of Ohio, and Buffalo, New York, when they both came in individually because the way we had it, and I was part you know, the guy photographing it, they would come in and be announced. I would snap pictures of them for our our newsletter and our program, etc., and then they would walk through. So when both came in, Tolis had all of these guys, a long line of people owed money, that had their hands out saying, where's my money, where's my <laughs> money? When both Pedro Martinez from the East Coast and Michael Bell came in, and Tolis organized that all of himself was like a gentle rib. That's tremendous. And another thing I could say, John was such a kind person. Uh, he would travel to Honolulu several times to visit uh, Lord Tallyho Bleers, when he was starting to suffer Alzheimer's and, and his wife put him in a nursing home, Tolis went and visited him. But the main thing was Vic Christie, which was like John's father in the business, you know, the old timer that preceded him in the LA office and the booking and, and the wrestling and everything else. Vic became ill. Vic was like the guy that did all the gentle ribs. Where when I did the Johnny Valentine book, I called rib. Those were all the violent ribs. I had Vic Christie do the forward. But when Vic got sick, John Tolis like daily was bringing him meals, taking TLC care of Vic Christie until he died. And and the Christie family all said John was like a godsend because there was like none of the other family members could spend that much time. And John was like living there, taking care of him. So that's the type of guy, the character of Golden Greek, the maniac, John Tolis, class guy, Chris Tolis, class guy, magic in the ring, and beloved. Nobody ever said a bad word except when Red Bastine gave an El Cemento award to John Tolis at one of his uh, Dallas <laughs> Texas shootouts. John came in one time only and Bastine gave him an El Cemento crowbar award for being stiff. But John really wasn't. It was like a rib, you know, because John would take TLC of anybody in the ring with him. You know, no one ever said John hurt him or anything like that. So it was just a Bastine rib. But Tolis was like 
yelling and screaming at Tex McKenzie and other people there, Killer Cox and Valentine and Maurice Fashon. They were all there at that one. He goes, why am I getting this award? Look at look at Mad Dog. Look at the Valentine. They all stiffed all these other guys and potatoed them. I, that's a perfect way to end this, Mike. Thank you again so much for your time tonight. Anytime, anytime, man. And hopefully I will shut up and let you ask more questions over whoever you have me back, if you do. <laughs> well, you'll be back for certain. I'll let you go thank and uh, have a great rest of your night. Thank you, thank you. Now, before I bring on my next guest for the evening, Evan Ginsberg, I'm going to play some more uh, classic audio. Now, this comes from an interview between John Tolos and Bill After, where John Tolos is going to be talking about uh, the feud with Classy Freddy Blassie, and uh, John Tolos puts himself over as only John Tolos can. So I'm going to play this uh, classic audio clip. Uh, it's about uh, three minutes or so, and on the other side, I'm thrilled to present to you my conversation with Evan Ginsberg. So please enjoy this audio. And then, more importantly, please join my conversation with Mr. Ginsburg. Okay, John, let me ask you this. Do you still regret what you did to Fred Blassie? You came on saying you saw you didn't really want to blind the guy or permanently injure him. Now it seems that you and Blassie aren't really on such great terms again. Do you regret what you did to him yet? I don't regret anything. I mean, uh, he's done many things to me, which... Uh, I don't want to cry about, but uh, what I did to Blasi, I'd do it again. In fact, we're having a big one, loser leave town uh, in L.A. December the 21st in a, a Blasi cage match, and this is going to be a big one. There's no referee, everything goes, it's going to be in a cage. You can have the loser. his own game. That's huh? right, and the loser's going to leave town. I got very tired of Blasi because this is all I've been hearing, Blasi this and Blasi that, Blasi Blad. I got real bloody sick of him, and... Uh, we're going to have it out and let it all lay down on the line and see who really is the best man. Okay, now when Blassie comes here, literally, he's, he seems to have like a split personality and it seems like the Mexicans out in Los Angeles love this man. What's your reaction to this? Here they hate him, they love him over there. You think this guy's got a split personality or something? I've always said he had a split personality. He's the type of guy to pat you on the back and at the next moment he sticks a knife in you. This is the type, you want to be a man, be a man. You know, to me, he's half man and half woman. I... Uh, when we became buddy buddies there for a while, I couldn't understand him, you know. Uh, we'd get in the ring together, and uh, we had a pretty fair team, and then all of a sudden, something just didn't gel. You know, I'm not blaming him, and I'm not blaming me. But, uh... Now, look, I gotta, I gotta stop you here, John. I gotta stop you here, because the exact same thing happened with you and Victor Rivera. You said, if you're gonna be a man, be a man, but it seems you turned your back on Victor Rivera just when the guy was, you know, really friends with you. Well, the reason my head was shaved off because I actually had Rivera beat. And out of the clear blue sky, something happened, and uh, you give me a low blow, and the man beat me. Now, if you call that true sportsmanship, and that's when I went wild. When I went wild, you'll never forget that. I may have had my head shaved, but I got news for you. I shaved his guts, and there's no question about it. Like tonight, right here at Madison Square Garden, I'm going to teach him a lesson, just like the lesson I taught him in Los Angeles. Only this time, it's going to be in front of his hometown fans. All right, well, what's your reaction now that uh, John told us he was loved by those fans out in California? They're going the hell out of John Tolis now. I like it that way. You do. I don't care if they hate me or love me or what. Long they come and see me, which they do. There's no man like John Tolis in Southern California. In fact, there's no man like Tolis, Maniac Tolis, in any wrestling city in the United States. You like States, that nickname Canada. that they hung on you? Maniac they hung on me. Maniac Tolis, the Golden Greek, 
jerk, bullet, I don't care what they call me. They can call me everything because deep down inside, the fans, the wrestling fans know that I am not only a great wrestler, but I am a great, great athlete. And when I'm in that ring, I give not a thousand percent, but one million percent of my ability. Okay, now why doesn't John Tolis get a title shot? Briscoe hasn't come out to California. Morales hasn't gone out there when he held the title. What's your reaction to this? Even Gagne doesn't go out there, and he's defended his title in Florida already, which is owned by the NWA. I have an open contract with the Hollywood Wrestling Office of the Olympic Auditorium. I have an open contract, and anybody wants to come, come on down. In fact, I tried to get here a long time ago to get Morales, but they refused. I tried to go to Minneapolis and get Gagne, they refused. I tried for Funk Senior like, for Junior like crazy, and he ref I wanted to even wrestle him in Amarillo, and he refused. Well, now I'm after Briscoe, one moment. Now I'm after Briscoe, and all of a sudden he's starting to refuse, but there's only one, one thing about it, is they're afraid of six foot two, 240 pounds of dynamite. And they know if they were in the same ring with me that I would beat them. Well, you feel that because Morales lost the title now, you've been asked to come to this territory? I think so. There's no other quit because I wanted to come in here a long time ago. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not a preliminary man. I'm a top man. I'm one of the greatest wrestlers people I've ever seen. I'm, I've been on TV here for, for three years now, and I still didn't get a chance to even have this close to come into Pedro Morales. I want to know why. Look at that. Why? Because they're all afraid. Even the promoters are afraid. Afraid they're going to hurt. You're going to hurt Morales. Yeah, or that I'm going to get Morales and get him good. Okay, John, one more question here. Have you got any gripes about wrestling, about the use of foreign objects, which we know that uh, you've been using recently also? Haven't you? I would call myself a great scientific wrestler. I, I believe, follow the rules? I follow the rules, but I also believe uh, an eye for an eye. And uh, if you're in that ring with me and you can't take it, then you better get the hell out. Okay, good enough. Go after with John Tolas. All right, real please be joined on the line right now by Evan Ginsberg. Evan, how you doing? Good, thank you. Good. Happy to be on. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, a guy from Hamilton gets uh, a couple of American starstruck. We would have heard earlier on in the program, uh, your compatriot, Dr. Mike Lena, was on the program. But I'm also happy to be speaking to you about uh, star of, or one of the stars of tonight's episode, uh, John Tolos. Absolutely. Um, as a kid in the 1970s, you're probably young to appreciate this we had what was called uhf dial and it was this mysterious <laughs> dial on the uh, tv and they had foreign language channels and public broadcasting channels and odds and ends and we never quite knew what was on so um i discovered wrestling just by you know fiddling with these channels and in new york city i'm a lifelong we got the um, we got the uh, California Olympic Auditorium tapings, and there was Tolos in his prime, one of the greatest um, promo guys, one of the great heels of all time, and uh, he used to say, "How do you spell wrestling?" <laughs> e o l o s, and this was before all the catchphrases and everything, and um, Guy was just tremendous, and he was a—he was basically a normal-sized guy. He wasn't, you know, in New York, to these super heavyweights who would, you know, wrestle Bruno and Pedro and Pedro Morales, who were too young. And uh, 
So there was Polos who was maybe 5'11", 2'10". I'm estimating, but he was not like a gigantic guy. Yes. He wasn't like a big bodybuilder or anything. But this man could talk you into a seat. This this guy could make you buy a ticket. And what happened was he came to New York so hot on LA TV at the Olympic. He came to New York to wrestle Bruno at, at Madison Square Garden. And this was a big deal. So there, there's Tolos. And he's doing all of these ethnic slurs, which we're not both <laughs> today. And... Bruno, you spaghetti bender, spaghetti bender. <laughs> and Bruno would be, you know, you're insulting my heritage and I'm going to get you with the garden. And, I mean, it was great. And, you know, as a kid and a mock, I mean, oh, Tolos was 10 feet tall to me at the time. And uh, him and Bruno was a really big deal. And uh, I believe it was Bruno's last victory where he used backbreaker, which was very dramatic. He put Tolos in the backbreaker. I don't think he ever did that again, at least not at Madison Square Garden. So it was a very dramatic finish, and the match itself was, um, you know, Tolos just came on every week on TV and insulted Bruno for like <laughs> one month. And so the fans wanted him to die. I mean, Because <laughs> everybody was lost back then. We really believed in Tolos was great. See, it's funny you mentioned the catchphrase, you know, how do you spell wrestling, T-O-L-O-S, right? Between that and, you know, what he was doing with his brother Chris, right, brother Chris? That's right, brother John. Like, this, they're, both of them, well, and especially John, was so ahead of his time in terms of, you know, talking an audience into a building. Like you said perfectly, right? He wasn't the biggest guy, but he didn't need to be. Because he had the ability to get you into the... You wanted to see him, in Bruno's instance, get murdered by Bruno. Yeah. And and Tolo's headlined everywhere. I mean, everywhere. He, uh, he worked all the territories. I saw a headlining in Texas. I didn't even realize when we campaigned. Uh, it was Tolo's against Valentine in Texas. Johnny Valentine. So... Um, you know, he made his way through all the territories. Pacific Northwest, he was a big star. But he, he as far as America, we knew him best from uh, California. He was yes. big for the longest time. Now, in terms of, because you had mentioned, you know, with the UHF vision being what it was, kind of a, kind of a underground network, if you will, of sorts. How prolific do you think that that, L.A. television permeated into New York and, and even more so the Northeast? Oh, it was big. It was um, Spanish language channel 41, channel 41 in New York, and uh, it was syndicated, so uh, it was shown in other parts throughout the country. The uh, commercials were in Spanish, and uh, yeah, I mean, it got seen, and a lot of those guys came into the garden, uh, Black Gordman, Goliath, Victor Rivera, because of the TV. It was very 7.30 at night on a Wednesday. So it was, it was basically primetime TV. So it was a big deal. You know, back in the day, the WWF, ironically, was on not only UHF, but um, 
it's on at midnight. So this California program that showcased Tolos was big. Okay, it's interesting then that then the L.A. time would have been earlier than the actual Tri-WF time. Yeah, 7.30 to 8.30 at night, absolutely. That's interesting. I never I never realized that part of it because, you know, you always think, you know, New York, the WWF or Tri-WF is prime time, always. It's, it, that's what's in our minds now, but it, it's, yeah. Back in the day, it would be... Midnight or early in the morning with like the Saturday morning cartoons for kids. <laughs> it was not the time juggernaut that it is now. It's a totally different ballgame back then. You're talking uh, like seventies. You know, wrestling really didn't until the uh, you know Hulkamani rock and wrestling or Wendy Richter you know era. So uh, I'm ten years earlier. Tell us, was at the dark. Well, you look down good for 103 years old. So. <laughs> clean, clean living. Tai Chi, yoga, Anyway. Okay. So in, in terms of, like, we all, obviously we've discussed his, you know, television presence. Was there a magazine presence in New York at that time? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we used to call it the After Mags, the Mark Mags. Um, and Tolos was on many of the covers because yes. of the TV exposure. And Tolos and Blassie, the younger fans probably don't realize, this was a closed circuit spectacular. This was pre, you know, cable, pre-pay-per-view. This was closed circuit. Blassie and Tolos. This was prior WrestleMania 1, many years before WrestleMania 1. And, uh, you know, Tolos and Blassie was you know, the match of the century. Sure, Mike Lano talked about it. But, um, you know, it was a really, really big. Uh, Tolos blinded him with uh, powder. And Tolos had a giant snake before Snake yeah. Jake Roberts. He was ahead <laughs> of his time. He, he used to do a bit, he put on a glove. It was just a glove. And he made it like it was like this deadly instrument of torture. <laughs> and he would go, Can I use my glove? You know, and you're a kid, you're a mark, and you're totally buying into it and sold everything. That was great. That's, I think, one of the things that is kind of lost on the, on the generation. Although I guess you could label me as part of that generation, but we always think of like you know the the best interviews, the best talkers, whatever. That that stuff started in the '80s. Before that, it was you know this corny sound bites and blah 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 but when you actually start to go back in in history and relive some of the stuff that a lot of these guys are doing you know uh like it told us a perfect example or you know blassie there's no way that that program you know goes as well as it does if he's not doing his part as well right but there's so many guys from the 70s the 60s you go back to the 50s guys who uh would master the art of self-promotion and it's it's interesting how now it's it's almost taken for granted as a novelty of you know because nowadays you don't find guys who can just come off naturally off the cuff and speak and and get people talking you know maybe somebody like an mgf would be the closest thing today but like in wwe it's it's all scripted stilted robotic you know they're memorizing lines 
them are not actors that are really capable of, of doing this. Yes. But uh, I would rank Topo's top 10 all-time promo guys. And you don't hear this today, and I'll tell you what. Much of his work was out of the Olympic, and the geniuses, the promoters, to save money, would take over the tapes every yeah. week. <laughs> yeah. So, so much of his legacy is gone. You no, know? and it's a shame. It's really a shame. Uh, on the WWE Network, a couple of matches with, with Polos, him and uh, Jerry Lawler on an AWA show. He was uh, a little past his prime at that point. Um, Tolos once said that the day he decided to quit, he was on an AWA show. It was a snowstorm. He was in a prelim. This is it on top. That's enough, yeah. He was on top in sunny California. (laughs) And now, you know, it's like a grind. But I'll tell you, um, Tolos... Top 10 all-time promo guys. I put them up there with Billy Graham, Roddy Piper, Dusty Rhodes. You know, just a tremendous talker. And uh, my, my father would watch him with me um, every Wednesday. And he he just loved the guy because like, you know, like, he realized it was all a work. Yeah. He's like, this guy's entertaining, you know. What? I, I wish, I just wish more of his career it still existed on tape because... He's one of these guys that history was unfortunate to. You know, also guys like Waldo Von Erichs, Rosarion, a lot of these top, top guys came before the Hulkamania era, again, where they would over a lot of their work. Yes. People don't realize how great some of these guys were. Unfortunately, some of them, when they were old, you know, the fans generation that followed me or whatnot, they perceived them to be quote-unquote jobbers because they didn't see them on top. Yeah. I, I just saw some guy knocking Greg Valentine, and I'm like, what? you don't know what you're saying. No. Said, Greg Valentine was on top, on top in the 70s and 80s. This guy, top 20 of all time. And Tolos and Valentine worked together. In, That's uh, right, yeah. Also. So, uh, you know, somebody... somebody Late, late in their career, where they're losing more than they're winning or whatnot, they don't really get the true picture. And a lot of those veterans, in um, at least in the WWF, WWE or whatnot, late 80s, 90s, you know, these guys were on top in other territories. And even sometimes in WWE itself, like Baron Cicluna, he was a tag team champion. Jerry Valiant, Butcher Paul Vachon. Yeah. These guys were champions. These guys were headliners. But at that point, no Vince was using them there. Well, that's Tolos, that's even like uh, someone like Blasi as well, right? Definitely on top until the very end, as far as I remember. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's wild just circling back to, you know, talking about film that exists today. You know, you, you look at his match history and it's 1,500 plus. And really, all that we're left with today is a handful. And, um, I don't, I don't see a lot of them on YouTube. Um, not a lot. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, relentlessly searching. But as far as I know, you know, I, I don't think much of all those LA TV tapings are gone. That's a shame. Yeah, and that's an absolute shame. Because yeah. you figure how much 
not just the tallest history, but how many guys were in that territory, you know, top, top drawing stars who's... Piper, the, young Piper was there. I yeah. was just going to say, yeah, and all, you know, you can hear the stories now about him and Guerrero, right? But but you can't, we've lost that. It's, unless somebody somehow was in the cheap seats with the, like a Super 8 or something, that's... Yeah, that's, I mean, there's, there's, there's footage, you know, that people shot handheld. It's it's grainy and there's no play by play or somebody is doing the play by play after the fact. But the, the legitimate stuff is gone for the most part. It's just, yeah, they didn't they didn't realize what they had. Yeah, and it's it's not just them too. Like there there's a lot of those territories where it's you know tape was expensive, so. Yeah. That, that, that you know the old classic uh, promoter trying to save a few bucks and and they didn't think anybody would want to see these matches again and now you fast forward to today where we're trying to really go back and, and find this stuff and recapture it and talk about it and and contextualize it properly and it's it's hard to do it plus um you know we we do documentaries we did the documentary 350 days that's right and um you know the footage is actually valuable. You have to rent or buy or lease, you know, footage when you make. So they basically destroyed stuff that had unlimited value. They, they didn't even realize. They were just trying to save the price of a tape, of a cassette tape, <laughs> the stupidity of it all in hindsight. There are some guys who I've heard throughout the years who – went out of their way to record their own matches. And one that comes to mind, and maybe I'm talking off the top of my head, but I want to say the Mongolian Stomper has tapes, or when he was alive, had tapes of all of his championship televised matches that he ever had. And somebody has those tapes somewhere. So if something like that can exist, then I have to believe that somewhere there's there's footage of John Tolos or the Tolos brothers that, that somewhere in somebody's attic or... It's it's somewhere, but it's got to be found. Well, there's I've seen 1950s footage commercially available of the Tolos brothers, um, but again, not a lot, not a lot. Yeah, I think I've seen some from Buffalo, and uh, I've seen some from. Oh, where would that have been? Um, some some Maple Leaf wrestling as well. I know uh, Andrew Calvert and those guys have been doing a pretty good job of, of transcribing a lot of the uh, old tapes. And again, there's no there's no commentary or anything like that. But at least you can see you can see the crowd. You can understand what it was like. Yeah, I um, I regret I never got to the Maple Leaf Gardens. This is what happens with the older guys. Like you know, we had certain ex- like I went to the Mid South Coliseum. I went down to Florida to the Miami Beach Convention Center, but you regret the uh, legendary arenas that you didn't get to mm-hmm. you know, to see uh, the classic wrestling. And uh, what can you do? You know, at the time, you're a kid, you're a teenager, and it's not just hopping on a train, plane, or automobile or whatnot and going. So, uh, but um, yeah, the, the guy like Tolos, I, I really appreciate you doing this because for a lot of people they just don't know they just don't know and he deserves for his legacy to be preserved and uh certainly vince isn't going to do it out of sight out of mind well and you know that's the other 
unfortunate side about, you know, the monopolization of wrestling and wrestling content is, yeah, if they have it, if they have it, are they going to present it um, historically correct? Because as we all know, the WWE has a, uh, has a very uh, fast and loose way of presenting history. And, you know, we see it with, in the AEW biographies, we see it in, in a lot of their, you know, WWE studios releases, however you want to call them, but they have a hard time with, well, even just look at this recent, uh, um, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, the rivalry show that they just had on A&E, right? And they still can't just tell the truth or explain history properly. It's self-serving, and uh, for me, particularly disturbing is when I see in, the, in their magazines, they'll have, for example, the top 50 heels of all time, and Philip Kowalski's number 50, and The Miz is like up at 10. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And um, I've been told by people who have actually worked there that, you know, their hand is on everything. And it's like, you can't put some guy who's dead or long retired in front of our current guy that we're pushing. So there's no validity. There's no, yeah. no legit validity <laughs> to any of it. I mean, you could put a Shawn Michaels near a top of a list, and I go with that, but... Don't tell me The Miz is greater than a, you know, Killer Kowalski or a John Tolos because it's simply not true. Yeah. It's not true. Well, and even in their company, right? Because they're, they're, it's not like Tolos never wrestled for the, well, it would have been the Tri-WF, but it's not like he, and I guess he did the stint as the coach as well. I guess we'd be remiss to not discuss that, but. Well, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about that briefly. Sure, let's do that. blood pressure rising. <laughs> um, here you have one of the greatest talkers of all time. One of the greatest promo guys ever. And they stick a whistle in his mouth and don't let him talk. What? You know, when you hear, like, Vince is a genius, I'm like, okay, he's a marketing genius. Yes. But a lot of these guys he just destroyed. This makes zero sense. Zero sense. And um, Tolos came back to work for, of all people, Herb Abrams. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's correct. They really, they actually, you know, he's interfering in matches. He's cutting promos. So he was really... Himself, just older as a manager and not as a wrestler. And I interviewed him backstage at a Herb Abrams show. And, oh, uh, no I'll way. Never, yeah, yeah, I'll never forget. Herb Abrams comes up to me, somebody introduces us, and uh, I was doing at the time, uh, WRFM 99.5 in New York. And um, Herb Abrams says to me straight out, I'll never forget, he goes, are you one of those guys who knocked me, you know, in the media? Like, oh, no, 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 I, I like your product. You know, I'm here to Dolos and uh, Lou Albano. And, you know, I actually had a lot of fun at Herb Abrams, uh, you know, show. Uh, you know, it was a short time it actually lasted. And uh, he, he gave me backstage access, and I got to sit down and interview Dolos, which was a thrill to me. And the guy was so... Down to earth, so gracious, so friendly. You know, he, he didn't have like this big star. Oh, I got five minutes, kid. You know, yeah. Whatever you need, take your time. 
just a good guy, and everybody says the same thing about him. And uh, Frank Valentine's a dear friend of mine, and he says he loved Tolos. And uh, a lot of the uh, legends who worked with him and knew him, always a great guy, you know, um, give you the shirt off his back. So, you That's... know, you're honoring somebody who not only was a great talent, but a, but a great person from what everybody has said and experienced. Um, and let me add that, like many wrestlers of that generation, he did not make the money he should have. He did not. A lot of those guys never broke a hundred grand back in the day. They were on the road, sending money back to their wife and kids, and and he, you know, afterwards he had day jobs like anybody else when he was in his fifties and sixties. So. You know, after the glory, it was not glamorous for a lot of these guys. Because think about it. Tolos was great enough to headline Madison Square in the 70s. That, he, he made four figures for that. He didn't break 10 grand. Trust me. I know what these guys made. Jeez. He made four figures. You think Elton John or Rod Stewart or Mick Jagger or whoever else was headlining the garden that same summer. Do you think they paid more money than <laughs> Of course they did. Of course. So, so these guys were exploited in it. Exploited in the uh, wrestling era. It's a shame. It's a shame. It, it, one thing that you did mention, I want to circle back to, is just the uh, prevailing comments from promoters, from people who interviewed him, and from from his fellow workers the one thing that carries through as a singular thread is just how nice he was and how he just dealt with everybody as, as equals, as, as, as proper individuals instead of, you know, he could have done the big shot thing and he could have, you know, um, how, how can we phrase it? He could have played the part outside of the ring and he didn't. And I think that's almost more impressive because it's very easy to, you know, be who you are on the screen and continue to be that person off the screen as well. Right. And it seems like he was able to separate that. And, you know, Mike Leno told a tremendous story of the, you know, when him and Blassie have a bloodbath match and they're trying to murder each other in the ring and they're in the back after the match, having a beer and laughing like old friends. It's, it's yeah. what a scene. Uh, I used to wait outside Madison square garden when I was a kid autographs and um, I'll tell you a couple quick stories you may find entertaining. The door the stage door was clearly labeled 7 feet. Andre the Giant did not have to duck. <laughs> he, not have to duck. he was legit 6'9 or 6'10. He had a huge afro that accentuated um, his height but uh, he was nowhere near 7'4. And um, there's Billy Graham Signing autographs, Bobby, the Grand Wizard, um, Lou Albano, Lou Albano, nice as could be, George Steele, you know, he's supposed to be, you know, yeah, the crazy animal. He's just chatting with us. So his kids are really smart and jump. And the other side of it was Dusty Rhodes, Andre the Giant, would never sign autographs for us. Never. Okay? So you got smarted up pretty quick going. Some of these good guys aren't so nice, and some of these bad guys are pretty nice. 
And uh, this was pre-internet, pre-sheets, you know, pre... I shouldn't say pre-sheets, but it's pretty primitive back then. Yes, but it was a different style back then. Like, back back when it was the actual uh, magazines, it was more... It was more news. It was more like tangible stories rather than what the sheets ended up becoming. And I mean, today is such a far cry from what it even was in the eighties and nineties. Well, back, back in the seventies and early eighties, the sheets were more like fan, you know, fan publications. We print results. We print uh, clips from different territories. Uh, just like people that were really passionate about wrestling and, you know, then Meltzer and Keller and some of these guys came along and it became more of a business, especially once wrestling exploded in the mid-'80s. And then the Internet, of course, came and it became an even bigger business. Yes. Uh, I'm senior editor right now for Wrestling Stories. And, uh, you know, with the, uh, the owner, J.P. Zock, is based out of England, but the site goes everywhere. There's millions and millions of readers. And it's not hype. I mean, it's, it's amazing that some of these wrestling sites have today so um, but back then it was basically fans and you'd send your primitive newsletter I did one called wrestling then and now you'd send it out to 50 or 100 or 150 people you know not not 15 million people. yeah <laughs> different world back then and um, but it was a lot of fun and you met a lot of great people and the wrestling like John Tolles I mean one thing leads to another, and there I am in a dressing room 20 years later. I'm not a kid anymore, and I'm interviewing Tolos, and part of me's totally mocking out because this was a childhood girl, and, and he was nice, and he was great. So, you know, it's an experience that I treasure. And, uh, yeah, when he, when he passed, I was truly saddened, and disgracefully, disgracefully, Hey, Vince McMahon so much as, you know, mention him on, on a TV show. Yeah. You know, take 10 seconds and say, uh, WWE extends condolences on the death of Montolos or whatnot. Doesn't cost you a dime. You know, this guy, this guy made money for them. You know, him and Chris were on top in the, in the late 50s in uh, his dad's promotion. I mean, you know, you can acknowledge somebody, and you know who's on the good list when when they're acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, very political. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we there we could probably do almost a whole show on just an issue like that. And I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds, but it's it's one of the problems I have with with how they deal with with issues like that and, and you know and the, their Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff that's a whole other Hall of Fame is basically Vince's good list yeah yeah so guys that were on his good list or guys he thinks he can make money from uh, you know that are glamorous enough those tickets are not cheap when they do those Hall of Fames and uh, they get TV exposure and it's usually part of the Wrestlemania DVD that, that's a, that generates money so no physical there's still no physical Hall of Fame there, you know. So they've made money off of this for the longest time now, and you know, without having to spend anything really. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when you got like thousand uh, dollar tickets to a WWE Hall of Fame, you know, I, 
So, so last year, for example, they put um, Ray Stevens, the, uh, you know, what, what's the term? The, um, for, the, for, the, for the Golden Age guys. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know what they, what they call that. Port of, no, I know what you're about, talking yeah, about, yeah. yeah. So basically, basically, it's like uh, you're not good enough like the Bellas. You know, like, <laughs> one of the five greatest wrestlers of all time, Ray Stevens. You're not good enough for the main show, but, uh, you know. Honorable mentions, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, that's a whole, oh my God. I could spend far too much time going into Something like that. Well, one night, one night, call me back, and uh, it'll be like a forty-five minute therapy session. For the <laughs> all the great guys That'll really get your in. blood pressure going, then. Yeah, it's. Um, I'll tell you, I have a love-hate relationship with WWE, and uh, you know, especially acknowledge a guy like Tolos, like you're doing. You're 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 working hard all day today, calling people, interviewing people, editing this eventually putting it out there, promoting it. You have more respect for this guy than, than somebody whose family made a lot of money off of this guy. I mean, to not, to not acknowledge him whatsoever, WWE, it just bothers me. Yeah, well, hopefully this this program tonight will open some people's eyes and, uh, you know, it's conversations like like we're having right now and, and with Mike and and some of the stories that I've been able to uncover and some of the, the history that I'm going to be or that is included and people have been listening to throughout this, this hours long program tonight is like, that's what it's all about. And it's, if, if I'm telling you, I'm telling you as somebody who's been watching wrestling for 50 years, attending all around the world, involved in various capacities. Tolos is easy. Top 20 all time. And I personally, I put him in the top 10. I'm just saying, easy top twenty, and people have no idea. He just—he's never in that conversation. And, and I'm saying, I'm saying it, having seen everybody live, this guy, this guy's top twenty of all time. And uh, it's a shame the footage isn't there. It's a shame the acknowledgement isn't there. But those who know know. You talk to the old school like California guys, they'll tell you. I'll tell you. I guess that's that's about as perfect a bow as we can almost put on this part of the conversation. Uh, is there anything that we didn't bring up that you wanted to touch on, Evan, before I let you go for the night? Um, honor the legend. Uh, give them their due. Don't sit on Facebook or social media and go, this one's overrated, that one's overrated. You know, um, talk about the guys who are unsung, you know, like a John Tolos, who history hasn't been kind to, and um, acknowledge them. And, uh, every time I see a picture of, of uh, Tolos on, uh, on uh, Facebook, I just feel happy. It just, like, it just <laughs> brings back these great memories, and I'm happy the guy's being acknowledged. And... Uh, you know, people forget what a huge star he was. Think about it. I saw him headline the Garden in 74. That's 48 years ago. It's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also a, re- a reason that, you know, 
not everybody knows him like a Hulk Hogan or a Roddy Piper. Or, uh, but uh, the man was great. I'll leave you with that. The man was great. And uh, check out our um, our podcast, Wrestling Coast to Coast. We talk about guys like Dolos all the time. We, we haven't done a full show on him, but you can always bring him up. And uh, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's been fun and uh, cathartic. Cathartic. As we head to the finish of tonight's program, I just want to mention some extremely exciting information. And before I forget, a tremendous five-star review that was left on Apple Podcast. So this one reads, props with a five-star rating and a written review, which reads, incredible production quality. They really put the time and effort into these, well-researched and super interesting. And that comes from Pop Etymology, once again, on Apple Podcasts. And as you folks all know by now, and if you didn't, now you know. If you leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, I will make sure that, that it gets read on the next available episode of Grappling with Canada. Now, keep in mind, I don't get notified immediately when you guys leave a five-star rating and written review so if you don't hear it the next month don't fret it's coming and i'll make sure that it gets read on the next available program once again tonight i really want to thank my two guests dr mike leno a three-time three-time returning champ to grappling with canada i thought we you know uncovered a lot of rocks in regards to uh, the Tolos brothers, and I thought he provided a lot of insight about what it was like to run a fan club uh, back in the you know 70s into the 80s of professional wrestling. Because for a lot of us, you know, I'm an 80s, you know, born in the 80s myself, grew up in the 90s. We really didn't have that, so it's fascinating for me to go back and have that touchstone moment of what it was like to be in that area at that time to follow your favorite wrestlers and what that was all about. I really also, again, want to thank Evan Ginsberg uh, for joining the program. Man, it was a great honor to talk to him. Uh, I've been following him for quite some time with his various projects. Obviously, The Wrestler, I wax poetic about that one. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and, and his stuff on uh, wrestling and everything from coast to coast. Uh, with his co-host, uh, one of the, which is uh, the aforementioned Dr. Mike Leno. But Evan was was a great guest. And check out everything that he's doing on uh, ProWrestlingStories.com. Speaking of which. And this I'm so fired up about. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's been under wraps for a couple of months now. But I'm very happy. Very happy. To share with each and every one of you that I am now a contributing member of the Pro Wrestling Stories family. So if you log on to ProWrestlingStories.com about mid-month, if you're listening to this right at the start of August, obviously go in and check out the incredible articles. You'll see uh, many past guests from this program like Dr. Mike Leno, like Mike or like uh, Evan Ginsberg, like you just heard, like Javier Oist, who's been on a few times, and a couple of guests 
that you're going to hear in the future. But about halfway through the month, you're going to see my debut article for ProWrestlingStories.com as I take an expanded look at the Nanjo Singh story. This is something that I did the special episode on in June, which was our precursor to July's episode on Whipper Billy Watson. It's uh, it's quite the expanded view of what happened with Nanjo Singh and the murder of his wife, Betty Singh. Now, I tried very hard in that episode to present it as factually as possible. And I'm really proud of what I was able to produce uh, with that article. And I really hope that you guys uh, check out ProWrestlingStories.com for that article. It should be out about mid-August, I believe. Now, I won't be able to contribute a article every month, <laughs> obviously. Uh, this program takes up, oh my goodness, an exorbitant amount of time. I think you guys know full well by now, these, are, these uh, episodes are not easy to put together, research, produce, get guests, etc. I spend probably... If I do a four-hour episode, or a three-hour episode, or a two-hour episode, it still is taking me anywhere between, you know, 25 to 50 hours total when you factor everything in. It's a labor of love. I really enjoy doing it. Because of that, I won't be, per se, a monthly contributor on ProWrestlingStories.com. However, I will be contributing some stories that people have never read in depth before, some of which are tied to various episodes in the Grappling with Canada pantheon. So, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you guys check out my article on Nanjo Singh and the murder of Betty Singh on ProWrestlingStories.com that, like I said, should be out about mid-August if you're listening to this on the 1st of August, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope that you uh, guys give me your feedback as well. In addition to all that, we are going to have a wrestling author, historian, wrestler, however you want to phrase him, Vance Nevada, back on the program very, very soon for a follow-up episode regarding Uncontrolled Chaos, his book about the Canadian professional wrestling uh, history scene. This thing, I cannot wait for it. I've seen the cover art. It looks incredible. If you guys are not on the Uncontrolled Chaos book Facebook group, I highly suggest that you hop on that. We are going to be doing a tremendous Q&A episode. It should be released about uh, mid-August as well before we get into September's episode of Grappling with Canada. And Thank you, everybody, who submitted um, questions for that, comments for that episode. Tune into that. You're going to hear them all. We are going to pepper Vance Nevada with questions, and uh, it's going to be quite the wild ride. And we're going to see exactly how far we can uh, push him outside of his comfort zone and really test the limits of what Vance Nevada knows 
has researched and found out about Canadian professional wrestling history, and I'm looking forward to it. This is what we're here for, right? Uncovering the untold stories, understanding the history, and finding out who these people were. And speaking of which, I really hope that everybody enjoyed tonight's episode on the Tolos Brothers. Again, two of the most undersung you know, wrestling icons, in my opinion, in Canadian professional wrestling history. And you know what? It was a lot of work, you know, digging up even just the audio clips that we found. Because as we talked with Mike and as we talked with Evan, a lot of this is simply lost to time. So if there is any chance that you have a relative who's somewhere in their attic, they got some microfilm, or maybe they have uh, VHS tapes, or maybe they got beta film, whatever. If we can get some of this history out, not specifically the Tolos Brothers, but also included the Tolos Brothers, I think it'll give everybody a big understanding of just what these people meant to the history of professional wrestling. And there's one other thing that I wanted to touch on before I let everybody go for tonight. And that is the level of stardom that we see. So, you know, we talked with Mike, we talked with Evan big time about, you know, the star that Chris Tolos was and the mega star, really, truthfully, that John Tolos was. And how at the end of their careers, there was nothing. Wrestling today is is obviously not the same in any way, shape, or form. You know, guys are making big money and good on them, right? They got guaranteed contracts. They can provide for their family. You know what? It, it, it's really, really uh, amazing to see the progression that we've seen in professional wrestling in terms of guys making the big money. We should never forget that the guys of today and girls of today are set up because of the blood, sweat, and tears of the people from our wrestling past. Not just in Canada, but worldwide. And I really want that to sink in, and I really want everybody to think about that. Where we are today, it doesn't exist without people like the Tolos Brothers, without people like Classy Freddie Blassie, without people, you know, you go on and on down the line of history and even go on and on down the line of uh, topics covered in this podcast. History is meant to be recorded and history needs to be reviewed by us and people in the future. And I hope that uh, all of you listening will go out of your way and, uh, you know, maybe throw John Tolos in your Google machine and see what pops up. Maybe throw Chris Tolos in your Google machine, see what pops up, something that we haven't covered in this podcast today. Take the time, learn the names, understand the history, and most importantly, respect what these men and women gave for their lives, for their bodies. You know, it's something that uh, is 
almost intangible and uh, is something that's really important that we don't lose sight of in regards to professional wrestling history. So, without leaving all everything on a downer, <laughs> I will uh, start to wrap this thing up. Once again, you can email me at any time, sixsidepod at gmail.com. I read everything you guys send, and I truly do appreciate everything that you guys send. You can hit me on Twitter at six underscore podcast. You can find us on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash six sided podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. The Facebook group is Canadian Professional Wrestling History. You can find the Facebook page. Use that wonderful search bar, Facebook pages, Grappling with Canada. You can also find us on Instagram, instagram.com slash Grappling with Canada. And the ways that you can donate to the program because this thing, like I said, it's a labor of love, but it is very uh, intensive, if you will. So anything that you guys can donate to help, really, I do appreciate. No, no donation is too small. And trust me, no donation is too big. Hit the link tree link in the show notes to figure out how you can do that. Whether it's uh, the PayPal direct link, whether it's uh, Good Pods, the tip function jar, or on buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. And don't forget to check out the official Grappling with Canada t-shirt store, uh, grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. And once again, as I always say, all t-shirt sales that include the Grappling with Canada classic logo with the Canadian Maple Leaf flag. Those all go to charity. So, for myself, the tax man, for my fantastic guests that I had tonight, I will leave each and every one of you as I usually do. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone.